I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Hello, and welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil, and with me today is the Mel Brooks to my commercial opportunity. Commercial opportunity? Wait. Gonna make those big bucks. Gonna be a big shot. You're making money? I am making moolah. Mucha moolah. What about me? I'm the co-host. I'm your second in command. I'm your lovely little presentation here. I am not gonna call you my lovely little anything. No, you are you are merely the sideshow attraction in this carnival of sorts. Of I'm s- making a connection here. <laughs> you are the one the audience jeers at. I am the person they give money to. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're talking about the Elephant Man from 1980. And I'm the Unplugged Professor. And before we get too far into this one, uh, might I say a few things? For one, no. Sorry, you don't get to say things. New <laughs> rules on this podcast. No, go ahead. So, for one, if there's any viewers that just listen to our podcast on our own and still want to have a chance to see The Elfin Man, as of this recording, you can view it through the Amazon Prime video. Not sponsored. Not sponsored at all, no. Although no, Jeff Bezos. No Bezos bucks. If you want to call us from your moon base. Don't do it. Okay, don't call us. Then don't call us. But, <laughs> but use like a pseudonym or something. I, why are you so money hungry in this I thing? don't know. It's, it's just the greed. Yes, and the greed. And speaking of the greed, we're going to be touching likely on to certain subjects throughout this podcast that are going to team likely into the area of uncomfortableness. Now, I I think that uh, as far as myself and Khalil, I believe that we can speak for both of us saying that when it came to this time and age, this is still a very grotesque practice that is done throughout the film and that is the act of freak shows right so um there are comments that are done throughout the film there are actions that are done without the film we want to try to make sure that this is as proper as possible so i do hope that we won't cause any discomfort we we can't really talk about the elephant man without talking about the elephant in the room which is you know the system of abuse that was happening here Mm -hmm. Uh, along with that discussions about trauma and kind of the behavior of mistreating these people who yes. are in the, the situation. Yes. Um, I feel like almost every David Lynch film, aside from maybe Dune, doesn't have any content warnings. I would need to check that again. And then I, I don't think the straight story will have any content warnings. Pretty much every other David Lynch film's got something that's going to make people uncomfortable, and that's just kind of Lynch's approach. Yep. Also, spoilers are in effect, as we will continue to have, where anything from Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me, Secret Diary, it's fair game. Uh, as well as the short films of David Lynch and Eraserhead. Oh, um, by the way, and just in case you're going to see the film separately and come back to us, fantastic, glad to have you around. Yeah. But just as a warning, uh, not only do we have that content before, but there's also uh, the operation on a body that happens inside of the film. There are points of direct abuse. This is mm-hmm. th- this is very much very unsettling of a film at times. So, forewarning. And I think it's a diff- it's a different kind of unsettling than Eraserhead. Like Eraserhead's yes. got body horror elements in its own way, and it's it's got elements that are 
weirdly sexual in a sort of subconscious sort of way that can unnerve people. Yeah, but I think that as far as it it's goes. It's so abstract. It's abstract. It's yeah. dreamlike. And this, it's far more, this is far more of a grounded of a film. This is the most, I, I've only seen so much David Lynch work. I've yeah. seen like probably enough to fill my hands unless we count the short films in which, man, I'm, I'm becoming a David Lynch expert here. Mm-hmm. But no, um, this seems like the most film-like film that I've seen David Lynch <laughs> of the two forward. of the two <laughs> plus to the short seven. films plus the short films. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, okay. I'm just going to spill one of my beans right now. One of my, at the very end, I was going to ask you one of the questions for the, the wonderful and strange question of the day. <laughs> oh, are we already done with the podcast? No, no, no. It was going to be, and I, I feel like now is the time to ask it. So I'm going to shoot it in now instead. <laughs> um, do you think of this as a, David Lynch film like yes. in in the genre category is it a David Lynch film if so like why uh, it still does th- there's existing elements of that sort of strained dreamlike approach in certain shots in certain mm-hmm. moments inside the film I think the opening shot that features yeah. the mother is probably the most notable one and um, the ending at the ending the point that happens within the play which was horrible I'll get to that later <laughs> It's something in which it's, I'd say it's like the earliest example of Twin Peaks taking something that is like a normal idea, like a sort of like how Twin Peaks is like this sort of show, a TV show with the cast members shot in a certain way. But then it takes those stranger elements and brings them in and shoots them in a certain fashion. Uh, Huh. Yeah, I, I think it's the first example I can think of. Like okay. using the chronological order of David Lynch that I'm getting so far. I, I guess, I guess, yeah, considering what you've only had the eraser head in the short films by this point chronologically. Uh-huh. Now, I might be, you may have not shown me like all of the things and there might have been like single mm. peak in which was the <laughs> true predecessor. I, I can't tell you about single peak. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, I think that this is probably the most Standard thing I'm going to see, but it's from still it still has an, a, enough moments. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I, I absolutely do think so, and I do think that there are some fantastic points of direction that happens through the film, especially yeah. in the cinematography and Anthony Hopkins. I keep trying to off pod call him Anthony Perkins because I'm perpetually hungry every time I see him. I suppose I don't know if they have Perkins everywhere, but like around here, they there's should. like it's like a bakery restaurant. Yeah, they should. I, I'm pretty sure it's everywhere. Okay. It, if it's not, we know for sure it's like that. in the Midwest area. Some delicious of the United States of America melts need to be. In I, I my don't mouth know, but we have we have great state. listeners in like Belgium. I don't know if they have Belgian Perkins. Belgium needs. They probably have their own things that are just as good, if not better. Maybe better. Maybe better. We need Belgian Perkins in the states now. Now, 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 now I'm craving. So now thank you're craving. You. Now I'm craving. Anyway, if there's any sort of equivalent towards our Belgium <laughs> listeners specifically that you would advise for us to check out in any future, we may go to Belgium. Please email don't, us. Don't make promises. At dreams at gmail.com. We, we made the joke. We don't have that much money. We don't have that much money. <laughs> I didn't say to visit anyone. I said we might just go to Belgium. Oh, like in a cargo ship. We're stowaways. Yeah, exactly. We and disguise ourselves in a box. And in those transport. cases, if that happens, tweet at us at Snake yeah. Dreams one the numeral one. Great as place. In, we have to share one box, Khalil. Basically, let us know if there's any good 24-hour like places you can get breakfast anytime you want. Yes. That's what we're getting at. And pie. <laughs> Lots oh, of pie. pie. Uh, anyway, um, going back to that question, I, I don't know if it feels like a quote-unquote David Lynch film to me. And mm-hmm. and this is where we get into that realm of subjective. Like, directed by David Lynch, mm-hmm. to me, doesn't equal, quote, David Lynch film. It doesn't feel like a Lynch film to me in the okay. way that the short films and Eraserhead, 
I see that signature Lynch style in its own way. Okay. Elements of Twin Peaks. And when we get into the future movies, for me, when I think of David Lynch's like important filmography, I think of the things that Lynch wrote primarily. Okay. I don't think of his adapted screenplays because mm-hmm. Elephant Man and Dune, he did not write the source material. He's basing what? it on something. Uh, there was a real Elephant Man situation with a real... Joseph Merrick. And there was a real Muad'Dib for Dune. Like, that, that's actually based a on reality. Um, so to <laughs> me, the ones that aren't written by him, where it's just kind of little flourishes, it's I can tell it's directed by him, but it doesn't feel like fully a Lynch film to me. Okay. Subjectively. I don't know. It, it's it's a totally just a feeling. It's just, it's just that Lynchy feeling that sort of, like, just caresses you around your heart and just lets you know, hey, things are going to get weird. So my sources today for trivia information are IMDb, David Lynch Wiki, Wikipedia, The Guardian, and the Turner Classic Movies website. Thank you. It sounds impressive quantity. Notice that two of them are wikis. But yep. hey, you know what? I'm trusting them. Wiki has I'm come trusting a long way. Community. It's got plenty of sources. I'm sure you looked at the sources too. I'm sure I looked at every single one of them and fact-checked them. Mm-hmm. So don't check if I did it because I already did it. Exactly. Don't need to double-check me. That'd be redundant. No, no. In fact, don't even try to single-check it. No. Um, so just before we get going into the nitty gritty details, uh, general thoughts on the movie professor, uh, general thoughts, I would say, had that you heard of this movie before, like us doing this podcast, like this is a fairly well-known movie from like the early eighties, like 1980 exactly. But I don't know if it's like something you'd heard of from other film discourse or community or anything like that. Now I've heard of Mr. Merrick. I I've heard of him inside the past, but I don't believe that I've heard of this film directly. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that respect, I went in almost completely blind to the concept. You just showed me, hey, there's something called the Elephant Man. Oh, it's this. Mm-hmm. Cool. So you didn't know going in it was going to be about the Joseph Merrick? I did not know. Mm. Okay. Uh, what did you think of the movie having seen it? I, you watched it twice, right? I had watched it act two and a half times. Two and a half times, just yep. like Two and a Half Men. It, it, I I say that because, well, actually, I suppose it's twice, and I just didn't watch it the third time. On my ride back home, I listened to it audio play style. So, that's the end of my answer. What would you think it, of the movie? Hell <laughs> right. Okay, is it a movie? It, yes. Because you said that Eraserhead didn't feel like a movie to you. This is absolutely This a is movie. definitely a movie. This is... Yes, very much movie. Was it a good movie? I think it was a good movie. I'm not going to say that I feel it was necessarily amazing. I think that there's certain stumblings that happen, especially inside the third act. But overall, did I have a good time? Was I entertained? Yes and yes. Um, Is it something in which I was surprised at a few points? Yes and yes, for better and for worse. I think that overall, I had a good time with the film. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, there's certain things I question, yeah. especially whenever it comes to situations that involved based on true stories. Yes, so. which we'll get to that stuff. Hence my repertoire of resources. Yes. Uh, if you were to give it a rating, I don't know if you do that. I like to do that. Mm-hmm. Out of like 10. So I would probably give it, repeat my statement before, based on a true story, I feel keeps me tentative sitting back and just wonder if this You want to give it a rating at the justice. end of the pod? Would that make you feel better? I think that that would be more appropriate. Okay. Um, I will do the same then. I will save mine for the end. Uh, I will agree with you, though, just so far as the listener knows. I'm also going in with the perspective that it's good, but it is not a high-ranking David Lynch film for me. Mm-hmm. I have seen all the David Lynch films. This is toward the bottom of the tier for me. Every single one. Impressive. Yeah, I just don't think it... I mean, I don't know if I've said this on pod before, and I'll probably say it again later anyway. 
David Lynch was who got me into movies, and I'm big into movies now. Um, and it was because I was shown Twin Peaks. I was uh, kind of shown who those. That's David Lynch. Oh yeah, I saw Eraserhead in high school. Put one and one together, and then started just going through his filmography, and you know, going through Blue Velvet, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire. Um, it did a lot for me. It really got me to look at movies in a different way. I kind of grew up thinking movies were just dumb entertainment. I didn't really think through them. I had a little bit of that, like reading the book is better. But then as I got older, I'm like, no, there's a lot of artistry and potential within the medium of film. And it kind of woke me up to that. So I, I watched all the Lynch movies within a relatively short amount of time. And that's how I got into watching movies. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, between book and between visual media, I think that both are their own yes. personal playgrounds. I and think a lot of the most... Their, sorry. <laughs> each have their specific strengths and weaknesses that I think that can honestly complement each other in the right hands. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of times the most interesting examples of them are ones that use their medium in a very like specific way, like it couldn't have been anything else but a movie or it couldn't have been anything else but a game because it used that medium so much. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think of a, of a game like the Stanley Parable or the Beginner's Guide, it had to be a game. Yeah, or Undertale I, had to be a game. Or uh, Super Mario Brothers had to be a game. Had to be a movie. It, it turned into a movie. Has to be a movie again. I, I, <laughs> those, oh, no. For those listening, recently oh. it was announced that there was going to be a Super Mario Brothers movie with Chris Pratt. If you're listening to this in the future, how was the movie or... What went wrong? Whichever question feels more appropriate. We don't know yet. We're in the past. Personally, I, I the Super Mario Brothers movie, the old one, Mario Mario Age, is is one of my favorite guilty pleasures myself. Mm-hmm. That I do not feel that Illumination will be able to top. So, but for but now, what if Mel Brooks was involved? What if Mel Brooks was involved? I can't tell because I always think to myself, wait. Is it now that Mel Brooks is dead? No, no, he's still going. Oh no! Going. Oh no! no because it, I feel like he's got a sense of humor. I don't it, think he would be offended, actually. But, but uh, every fair ta- enough. Every time I see him, he always, whenever he appears inside of his old film, yeah, even like from decades ago, he's usually an older, mm, mm-hmm. wiser is the question mark word, but it's still portrayed yeah. figure, uh, such as yogurt or that yeah. one guy who has the tiny gavel for your penis from uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights. So I, it's just that I don't know how old Bell Brooks is, and I'm and too afraid could, to look We up. could Google, but we don't want to know. We don't want to know. Um, it's so, the magic. So I got a bit of background information on the creation of the Elephant Man movie, and, and part of that is with Mel Brooks. Mm-hmm. So famously, Eraserhead is what got David Lynch into making the Elephant Man and really starting his more Hollywood film career. Okay. It got his foot in the door. Uh-huh. Um, it made its runnings kind of at late night showings alongside like Pink Flamingos, and it became kind of like an underground hit. But yep, even with an underground status, you would see these kind of more adventurous and maybe a little bit more experimental filmmakers looking at it being like, yeah, even George Lucas, it's easy for us to forget George Lucas. He made THX before he made star Wars and he did some weird stuff. He was a little experimental at the time. I don't know what thanks is. And even like the first star Wars, you think about it. If star Wars never had any sequels, it'd be just this weird experimental thing from the Mm seventies that looked like nothing else selling anything else. Point is Mel Brooks, one of those guys who saw Eraserhead and he's like, I like this. So uh, Eraserhead, quote, caught the attention of producer Stuart Cornfield from the form production company Brooks Films, which was headed by the screen satirist Mel Brooks. Oh, okay. I I, I see. Brooks, Brooks. Brooks makes sense. 
So how many Mel Brooks films have you seen? It sounds like you've seen at least a couple. I suppose it's appropriate to say that I've caught about 2.4 of his films. <laughs> Came and round up. Because I, I've seen, like, the start of Young Frankenstein. Okay. And I'm pretty sure I've seen a collection of scenes from ja Dracula Dead and Loving It. Okay. But beyond that, Spaceballs and Robin Hood Men in Tights. Okay. I remember seeing vaguely elements of Blazing Sandals. No, Saddles. Not mm -hmm. Sandals. Nope. Totally different thing. Totally uh, different thing. I, I think I saw parts of Blazing Saddles, which I believe is Mel Brooks, right? And then mm -hmm. I saw Spaceballs, so my knowledge is actually pretty limited. I, I still want to see the producers, though. The oh, producers yeah. is a big one that I always hear fantastic and, things And about. the stage versus the film. You know, that'd be curiosity. Obviously, yes. we can't go out and just see it on stage necessarily right away, but maybe there's some things we can look into with that. Hey, anyway, Brooks, anyway. if you can help us out here, <laughs> just go ahead and email us at Snake Eye Email our friend Jeff Bezos from the moon, and we can, we can make something work. It's not have, a friend. Have your people talk to our people, our people being... Jeff Bezos. I, I will. I will not. Nope. I make jokes. I make jokes. You make jokes. I. I, I refute the Bezos. One day the guillotine will be after me for these jokes. <laughs> anyway, continuing. Um, so interestingly enough, uh, Mel Brooks did not want his name attached to the Elephant Man. Not mm -hmm. because he was disavowing the movie by any means. He just was worried that people get the wrong idea if they saw Mel Brooks's name attached to this drama. Yeah, he, he kind of so, got like a theme going for a lot of his films. Yeah, so he he kind of didn't want to be directly linked to it, even though he definitely was promoting it. Uh -huh. It was one of like the major films that Brooks Film was putting out. Uh, I like this quote from the Turner Classic Movies website. Quote, with The Elephant Man, Brooks defied studio convention by hiring an avant-garde director to helm a major production, shooting the film in black and white, and refusing to allow studio brass to tamper with Lynch's vision. When shown a cut of the film, Paramount executives recommended that the surreal opening and closing sequences be removed from the film. According to Cornfield, Brooks tersely responded, We are involved in a business venture. We screen the film for you to bring up to date as to the status of that venture. Do not misconstrue this as our soliciting the input of raging primitives. Brooks's stubbornness, <laughs> Brooks's stubbornness was rewarded as the film garnered eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, Director, and Actor. I feel like he proceeded to just slap him with gloves at the end of that statement. That, that just seems like a glove-slapping moment. And, and we'll talk about the opening and closing in specifics later, but... Do you agree with Mel Brooks in the sense of that those surreal opening and ending were essential or at the very least enhanced the film rather than having been cut? I think that's... Because they don't really fit the tone. Like, they do feel very different than the other parts of the movie. No, no, no. I, I think that it's not about trying to fit the mold of the rest of the film. It's about what does it do mm -hmm. at those moments. And in this case, I think that the discomfort caused from the Elephant Man scene at the start sure. of the film brings you into a sense of almost tenseness as well as just kind of being a little bit shaken by it just from this odd mechanical sound and yeah. all the screaming to be then proceeded into the wildness of the overall affairs from outside. I think that starting with that makes it so that there isn't conflicting emotion in the preceding scene where someone could be like, oh, wait, it's loud, it's crazy, a whole bunch of people here, hey, it's a carnival. I, I, I think it just kind of puts you indefinitely in the proper okay. space as opposed towards gambling with the presentation. Okay. I, I feel that the opening is effective. I do not like the closing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also understand the idea of opening and closing being similar, being in that sort of weird, surreal style, 
it bookends the film it, in a kind of a nice way. Yeah. Even if I may not like the execution on the ending so much. It's as George Lucas once said, with poetry, it rhymes. That, I was actually thinking the exact same thing, but minus the George Lucas attribution. Mm-hmm. Correct. <laughs> um, got another IMDb trivia here. In a 2008 interview with The Guardian about the making of this movie, Mel Brooks recalled that David Lynch was unprepared for the bitter cold of London winter and didn't have a suitable overcoat, which Brooks bought him. Also, he couldn't adapt to not eating Bob's Big Boy burgers every day. Quote, he's very obsessive compulsive that way, but you know, he did find a burger joint in London and he ate there every day too. Also, on the casting of Anne Bancroft, who is, at the time, was Mel Brooks's wife, and she ended up playing Mrs. Kendall in the movie, Mm -hmm. uh, Brooks said, quote, she already had won the Oscar for The Miracle Worker, and she was the producer's wife, so no, she didn't have to audition. Are you crazy? Yeah, I'm crazy. I feel that everyone should give the proper shot. So, that's what I got for Mel Brooks information. Take it or leave it. It's already been said. It's already been said. It's, it's you in cannot the erase my words unless you delete this file. Please don't do that. <laughs> I mean, I do have access to the file. You shared it with me. Oh, no. Yes, yes. So. Did you sense any Mel Brooks uh, feeling in this movie? Mel if Brooks I didn't tell feeling? you he was behind this in some way, would you have suspected? No. Me neither. <laughs> That's where this conversation ends, isn't it? I think that <laughs> I think that just framing of certain shots may be like... And he was a producer. It wasn't like he was directing it. Yeah, no, absolutely not. But I'm more so saying in like the framework of like how people are sharing dialogue, but I think it was just yeah. common yeah. for that age, like on those common film techniques. So sure. Uh, otherwise, unless Mel Brooks just kind of popped in and said, hey, how's it going? I'm Mel Brooks. Yeah, that's what he did every single time. Every time. And then David Lynch is, I'm eating a burger. And then they just... Walked away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That exactly for Angelo bottle a burger. <laughs> Angelo what? burger lamenti. What what does a bottle of burger? I sound like to you? burger lamenti. I like bottle more. of burger because to each their own. There's two kinds of people in this world. <laughs> um, speaking of David Lynch and his involvement, uh, this was David Lynch's first studio movie. His first kind of more mainstream, more commercial movie. Yes. The screenplay was adapted by David Lynch along with Christopher DeVore and Eric Berggren. Uh, from the books, there's two books that kind of combined, um, The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences, yeah. which was Mr. Treves, uh, Sir Frederick Treves's book. Okay. And then there's The Elephant Man, A Study in Human Dignity by Ashley Montagu. And David Lynch also helped provide the musical direction and sound design for the film. Mm-hmm. I don't think Alan Splett was as involved this time. And this is the only movie of David Lynch's not to feature any cast members from Twin Peaks. Yay! Which a big part of that is the absence of Jack Nance. Now, was like, did, was there some sort of feud between Mel Brooks and Jack Nance? It's like, no, no, Jack Nance just wasn't in London. He oh, had okay. other things going on. Okay. Um, but, you know, I think we mentioned before, David Lynch has said that if he could have worked with Jack Nance in this film, he would have put him in there in like a heartbeat. Where do you think Jack Nance would have fit? I think he probably would have been just like one of the people at the bar when um, the porter is trying to get everyone to go see the elephant man. I feel like I could see Jack Nance in a bar, just kind of in the background, having maybe a couple lines here and there. Like, I want to go see what this is about. You know, just kind of like a couple lines. I don't think he'd have a major role, but I could definitely see him being a, a background character. He maybe even could have been the the night porter, to be honest. But I, I think he'd probably more likely just be a person in the bar. And not, not the nurse mother? Probably not, although Jack Nance, he can act himself out of a box. <laughs> he, he certainly could. So, yeah. Uh, other things with the now, production. I've got to say, 
if this is the meaning of love, then yes, I love him. Other things about the production, uh, Salsa from Turner Classic Movies, quote, the production faced a number of challenges, including a rival version of Merrick's story with the exact same title that had won the Tony Award for Best Play in 1979. That's one year prior. Okay. The stage play by Bernard Pomerantz opted not to recreate Merrick's physical deformity, mm. but to have the leading actor play the role barefaced so that Merrick's humanity, not monstrosity, would be emphasized. Okay. Actors who appeared as Merrick in this production include Mark Hamill, who would go on to be in Star Wars, and David Bowie, which is like poetry in rhymes, ain't it? Um, man, so it's, I, I, Bowie, I, there's like, you could Google it. If you look up Bowie, Elephant Man, you could see like posters, promotional art. It's just David Bowie. He doesn't like do anything with his face. Mm -hmm. So my question just for you, getting your thoughts on yes. a play you've never seen. Yes. Um, I'm just curious, what do you think at base of the idea of instead of doing anything with the face, just leaving the actor barefaced and just, again, quote, to emphasize his humanity? I think that's... Bareface, so there's no other like cosmetic or they're doing the whole nothing body. to distinguish Merrick's face from anyone else's. I don't, it's that's gonna be a bit of tricky execution. I find like I do get the sentiment, I do get the like understanding yeah, of where they're coming from. I think from. the intentions are really good, I think so as well. It's just more so how much do the other characters sort of behave, and again. The most important question of all, which applies to Elephant Man, the movie, the stage play, whatever you want to put the story into, what does it say towards Mr. Merrick yeah. in his life? My concern, first of all, is that, well, I do think the intentions are good. I understand what they're trying to get at there, at least the way it's being described here. My concern is that that was a part of him. His appearance is part of him. Like, you can't say it's not part of his life. So to me, it's, it's, it's kind of an unfaithful way to go about telling about this man to erase such a central element of who he was. What it doesn't mean, like, I'm going to go into near vibes here, but... Okay, what, that's a video game for those who don't know. Yes. But in the end, the idea of humanity is... Well, let's not spoil near too much, okay? Don't say <laughs> me... Don't tell me in the end. The appearance of yeah. someone. Like, yeah. how much does that mean to make it seem like humanity? Is it the normative value in which everyone is the same in one way or another? Or is it to the emphasis of one's uniqueness? And I, and I think it's interesting that they took such two different approaches because the play, in order to emphasize the humanity of him, made him look like everyone else. David Bowie looks like everybody else. You know David what I mean. David Bowie looks like no one else. He does not look like someone that you would see highlighted in a freak show. To, to use that that bluntness here. He definitely has a strange appearance with his eyes. Okay. He, you know, I say it in the present tense, but obviously he's passed. But uh -huh. um, he obviously had a slightly different face. Say Mark Hamill was just a regular looking dude, though. Mm -hmm. um, you know, regular in the sense of normative, like you're saying. Whereas the movie went out of its way to be very, very realistic with how it portrayed him. And if anything, embellished the fact that that was part of his life. Like, mm -hmm. that's the main thing this movie's about, is mm -hmm. that how that physical effect, his physical deformity, affected his life and the people around him responding. Yes. So it feels like they're both trying to comment on the humanity of this person. One is by, I mean, to use the negative term, erasing the difference. And one is by embellishing the difference. It's, I don't know if there's like a right answer. I think it's a gray area, but I just think it's an interesting difference. I think that, again, for a play that I have not seen. Right. I we have not seen the 1970s version of this play starring David Bowie. I don't think we ever will. Yeah. No. Something <laughs> tells me we're not going to go back to the 70s. Yet. But. Before? Mm -hmm. Is it yet or then. before if it's in yet. the past? 
It's really anyway. <laughs> wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Yes. Continuing with the background information, uh, and quote, in order to recreate 1884 London, the film was shot on location in England. Production designer Stuart Craig faithfully recreated the slums of England to be filmed through a sooty fog by cinematographer Freddie Francis. He was best known for having directed several gothic horror films for the British Hammer Studios. Fancy. But as the film neared production, Lynch felt as though he still did not have a firm grasp of the period and the cinematic look it should have. While touring London... Lynch was allowed to visit an abandoned hospital, dripping with grime and littered with decaying equipment. Lynch remembered, this is, this is the most David Lynch thing you could possibly imagine. If you're doing a Mad Lib right now in your head of David Lynch phrases, mm-hmm. suddenly a little wind-like thing came and entered me. And I was in that time, not only in that time in the room, but I knew that time. It filled me with a knowing and therefore a confidence that I couldn't be, it couldn't be taken away from me. I knew what it was like then, and it came out of that hospital, but it was more than the hospital. Maybe it was the photos. Maybe it was a bunch of things coming together. But from then on, I had my take on what I thought it was. More than anything, it gave me a confidence. David Lynch, if you got a waft of something and it took you to a new place in an abandoned I got a wind of that hospital. burger joint down the street. No, no, I don't <laughs> think it's the burger joint. I think it's some sort of mold and we need to get you to I the got hospital. A, that mold is really helping me. Uh, keep me in the mold. You know, don't, Mel don't. Brooks, keep me in the mold. No, stop. David, David, David. No, no. Angelo Bottolamenti, smear that mold all over me, baby. Put, put, it, put it out. out no, <laughs> stop. Stop. Uh, I don't know if I'm, am I getting any better with the David Lynch impersonation? It's getting worse. I, I think that you <laughs> Forming are... Forming my own uh, original character you, out of him. <laughs> you are falling into a madness that I'm sure we're all entertained watching. Uh, watching? Don't watch me. Listen to me, please. Anyway. The last thing I have on here, I promise. Uh, the industrial scenes were all archival footage. As those factories were all gone by the time the movie was made. So any of the scenes involving like the industrial stuff that was like a lot of the Lynchian elements, that was all stuff from before and those factories didn't even exist at the time of the movie. <laughs> Ain't that interesting? That is interesting. And you think about the carnival as well, you meant not the carnival, the uh, the drama performance in the theater. Yes. That also had a lot of like footage from other things incorporated in. Oh, it feels so that's like a, it. That's a tactic uh-huh. of the Lynch man. It's got some tact, I'll give it that. So we're tacking on an opening to this movie. Spooky. Tim Burton, Danny Elfman kind of vibes with that music. No. You can disagree. I will. And I will disagree with your disagreement. Uh, it, I was getting some mischievous whimsy out of that opening music. Mischievous whimsy. That is Danny Elfman, Tim Burton in a nutshell. Mischievous whimsy. And I got a little bit of that. I caught a little wind of mischievous whimsy in the air. Yeah. And I said to Angelo, why aren't you here composing my music for me? Um, clearly it's because you ended up having too much and conked out because no. I, fi- I don't I think met yet even. Probably not. <laughs> It, 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 it's, it's mechanical. It's hot. It, it's, it's very much be, be, when the credits, when the names are first appearing, that's what I'm talking uh, about yes. oh. before the mechanics. Oh, well, it. before that, there are still me- mechanics, but not in the machine sense, but of the small little <laughs> music box being played. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. And um, I feel it's haunting dreary. It lulls that Also you. is Danny Elfman, Tim Burton vibes. What? No, they're super. I'm an Edward. I'm a Scissorhands. I'm an Edward Scissorhands. That is that's Tim Burton. You've just done a Tim Burton right there. And that's why this is the opposite because this is like if you slowed it down and just kind of like kept you there, man. That's how it feels. If you slow Tim Burton and Danny Elfman down, 
and made them sad, then yes, I agree. Made them actually sad, not just actually sad as sad. an aesthetic. Yeah, exactly. Fair not as, enough. Not as an aesthetic, just sad. Okay, okay, Sad elf. Enough. Sad um, elf man. It goes from the opening title credits with the, with the people's names to close up on lady eyes. We then pan down to lady mouth. Neutral expression. Mm, mm-hmm. Maybe a neutral. Kind of hard to read the expression. It's hard to read the expression, but I think that that's important for the yeah. piece. H- having something locked like if I, to if, you. If this was a book, how would you write the description of that face she's making? Uh, the face that she's making? Well, I probably first proceeded with a description on the eyes that gaze straight into you before your eyes sort of match towards her lips. Lips being oftentimes an emphasis on something such as beauty. Mm. if you will, and just trying to almost, like, bring in the viewer until, like, when it's sort of like a flat shot of the whole picture, it feels cold. Mm -hmm. So it's already working with those sort of, like, opposing polar feelings. Sure. And this is the mom, right? We don't know it right away. This is the mom. This is supposedly the mom. Supposedly the mom. I want to make that an emphasis because however he got that picture... However, he held yeah. on to it for however long. Sure. Whoever told him that was a picture of his mother. Yeah. Do we have the records to verify? The movie doesn't necessarily make that clear. No. Um, we also get zooming in toward, I thought it was the eyes of another lady. A different lady? No. Okay, maybe it's the same lady, just different angle. And Pretty I, sure I misunderstood. it's the same lady. I think it's meant to be the same lady. Uh, there's a cranking, stomping in the background, and we see these elephants going left to right. Back to the lady eyes. Elephant head. On one eye, and then I put Ella butt on other. E-L-E butt is what my notes say. Just so you know, Merrick's mother has two separate credits. Okay. Two different actresses Hmm. played Merrick's mother. Maybe my hypothesis isn't so far-fetched after all. Maybe, maybe not. I will say it is at the end of the credits, so at the very least, the final scene may be a different person. Yeah. So It could also be a voiceover is different than the face. Yep. Where in which case it is the same face, it's just different voice. Uh, I don't know. Who is to say, not me? Probably someone from the production, but I don't think we can get a hold of them. Ah, I'll, I'll call Mel Brooks later. <laughs> um, anyway, we, we have this, this scene with the yellow butt and the elephants and all those sort of things happening there. And the elephants turn and approach the viewer, walking toward the viewer, and there is darkness. Two. Two. Two elephants, the rest stay in line. And they're elephant, the trumpets. The trumpets, you know, like Mambo number five, you know, the trumpets. I don't know. You, you got to stop the this The more music I say stuff. it, the more I say the trumpets. The, the more anyway, of a fool you're made, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I think I'm making you the fool for not knowing the classic hit yes. song of the late 90s, early 2000s, Mambo number five. Right, right, right. I'm the fool as you keep on saying the trumpets. <laughs> the trumpets, which is... Totally fine and comprehensible. Yes. Um, uh, And the elephants are trumpeting still, and there's an abrupt cut to the stomping audio and the trumpeting, and then we see the the smoke rising, the baby crying. Oh. Dracula. Oh. And then we get cut to the circus, the Calliope music. Is it Calliope? Is that how I say it? Calliope? Anyway, it's on the subtitling. And uh, Anthony Hopkins is a hat man. He is walking. And I would say that's the end of that opening little section. I mean, he's certainly walking, but I find that almost through all of this, it's almost as if he's just lost where he is. Like, almost like guided by just circumstances. A little wind came in the air, and Anthony Hopkins put on a hat, and he walked toward the wind. (laughs) Exactly. Drawing him in. 
Mm-hmm. It feels like fate. It, it feels like he's fated to have this chance encounter. Yes. Maybe he went there with the explicit purpose of seeing this man, having heard the rumors about him, wanting to see for himself. Mm-hmm. A lot of things with this character are up to interpretation. You know, how much do you read into his motivations? And I think that Anthony Hopkins does really sell that very well. I think that trying to read his face in multiple times is half the entertainment of this character. Yeah, because, like, as I'm watching this, there's multiple points where I'm thinking, oh, man, Dr. Treves here, you are a nice man. You help out the the man, the elephant man. You help him out because you're a nice man, Dr. Man. When? When he's like taking them in and, and trying to keep them safe. And, well, well, that, but then, that uh, no, portion. But my point is, other times, I'm like, Dr. Treves, are you are you just as bad? Are you just as opportunistic? Are you just using this man for the clout it'll get you and I, what that'll do to your reputation, having him, like, social currency, you weirdo? <laughs> Did you come to this this freak show with the explicit purpose of acquiring this man. Was that your plan? I mean, the movie literally says almost all that verbatim. Yeah. So, but then it gets dropped because I feel like any time that he gets questioned on his motives, it doesn't linger. The wife just jumps in and says, no, I, I think that the <laughs> wife tries to assure him, but he doesn't seem fully assured. And I think it doesn't that that fully ha- convince me either. I think that the haunting sort of like sense of like trying to find the answer for himself and have that linger is the most powerful thing that it can do for this because it doesn't give us the straight answer. It doesn't give trees mm-hmm. the straight answer. Only his questions is pondering and probably a section of guilt within his own soul. Now, now ponder this in your own soul. Uh, supposedly, Sir Anthony Hopkins, uh, his portrayal of Dr. Trees in this movie is what had inspired Jonathan Demme to cast him as Dr. Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Supposedly, this was the role that made him want to make him the cannibal man. So I don't know if if, if that director happened to look at it and see, see the evil potential here. Um, Hopkins later, by the way, said that he felt the, the quote-unquote sharing and caring role of Dr. Treves, he found it to be rather dull. So mm. I don't know if Hopkins has said too much about this role, but didn't really find it that interesting in retrospect looking back on it. Again, I think his performance is very telling, and I do see where that instance may have came up for recruiting because, again, I think his facial sort of features mm-hmm. are quite the feature, and even just the way that he behaves in it's some like scenes. He's, he's very expressive at emotion. But on the other hand, you can't quite place the emotion sometimes. Yes. So it, it's a good balance of I, I, he's communicating very believable human emotion, but it still is subjective. He hits that weird little gray middle area that's pretty good sweet spot. Yes. For what he's for what I would say, if it wasn't that performance, the character wouldn't be that interesting in no, the movie. Absolutely. And I mean, I don't know the real life guy. Maybe he was fascinating, but in mm-hmm. in the context of the movie. So we begin on the sort of like. Very erratic, strange, disorienting carnival as we see Treves sort of like wander almost absently. It's only thanks to like seeing a cop sort of like pass into a no entry door that he decides to shortly follow after that same person through the no entry spot where we get to actually see a preview of various uh, individuals amongst those in this show of individuals and there's all sorts of notable things that he does come across i think the most notable one for me is the fruits of original sin there's like there's like a person in a jar of this strange sort of like body in this like weird test tube deadly 
not deadly premonitions. I was going to say premonitions of an evil deed. <laughs> the, the, the ladies in the tubes. Yep. So Deadly nope. premonitions are totally different thing. Totally different well, thing. Well, but still related. I don't think this is ladies. I think it's a singular being, and I think ah. it's just a person being pickled. Which, you know, that's what they're into. That's no. <laughs> no, none of that. this is okay. Yeah. All of the sites that they're going through is not okay. I mean, it, it's. I think there's this element that I, I don't know if the film really has the capacity or interest in fully exploring what it's talking about with, with the freak show idea, because it is, it is pretty complicated and nuanced. I don't have a vast knowledge of history on this topic. I just have the, the gut response that it is inhumane to put people on to display for mockery and fear. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of, Oh, I'm going to go have a good time. So I'm going to go gawk at people like at their expense. That just feels really wrong. But I think that the the hard part about all of this is that if you look at the situation in this time period, in this economy, while I do think it's abhorrent, it's also one of those cases where a lot of times in real life, the people in these shows were voluntarily going because where else are they going to go? Literally, this was their way a, to make money. Yeah, it's literally a line that Bites says that's Which, and it doesn't really get taken very far because Bites is the most disgusting person, but... He is a freak. How else will he live? As he there says. is some truth to that. As as much as it it's bad to have to accept that it, it it's there is the sense that there wasn't really much of an infrastructure economically for someone to make a living. This was a, a route that could be taken. So I, I'm torn. You know, we say none of this is okay. I agree. Like I think ethically, none of this is okay. At the same time, I don't really know if I can judge the people who are you know being displayed if they are voluntarily being displayed. I think now that, that, John Merrick in the film, obviously not voluntary. Yes. This is, this is basically slavery. Yes. And I, I do, I would call out a whole country still saying that it's still ethically wrong. Yeah. Because it's only up to John Merrick in which like things are about to be shut down, if you will, because of his overall presence, but everything else was a okay. I also want to point out the fact that again, going back to the fruits of, original sin yeah there seems to be a, a lot of sort of christian sort of mm. bits and pieces through this film wouldn't you say which i almost wonder tonally there's something weird going on with a sort of an appeal to tradition because when we start looking into the universal humanity of john merrick in the film you enter him quoting shakespeare you enter these you know bible verses and it feels like it's trying to appeal to this idea of he is truly human by giving him the most like stereotypical high values, you know, like mm -hmm. the idea of high classic Western literature and, you know, true Christian values. And, and I feel like it's sort of an appeal to making John Merrick as frankly palatable to a wide British or American for the movie uh, audience that this is someone who, you know, you look at and you're like, this is a good person by very mm -hmm. traditional values. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think that's, I think that's kind of a consistent thing in the movie is that element of traditional values, especially uh, Judeo-Christian, mm -hmm. which, you know, the uh, the carnival and the sort of freak show ideas is very much not yes. Christian. Yes, instead, and instead here we are with cops trying to put everything away because apparently, again, John Merrick is the limit. They are going to shut them down. Yeah. And that is when I imagine that's when 
like the gears sort of turn and probably even more like fascination and more yeah. desire goes through goes through Treves. Right. To the point that we actually do see a operating scene that is again heavily grotesque. I think it's one of those points I don't like needles. Okay. I don't like sharp things. I don't like the penetration of skin. And so yeah. seeing this, it was very difficult for myself, especially with the person in the corner that seemed to just be blowing. Like, like you shouldn't fluid. watch Lars von Trier films. Probably not. Just a feeling. What was that guy in the back doing with the little like dual pump sort of like remember. spritzing? It looked like he had like a little, like one of those little hookah things, but instead it squirt water. So it hmm. looked like they was just sort of squirting water all over the place. Anyway, uh, they're stabbing a man and trying to uh, get him to feel better when a little kid just comes in and says, Beast of Shreves, I find him. He's like, very good boy. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I don't think kid ever gets a name. I know who you're talking about. Yep. The, the boy. The boy. Um, the boy. And so, uh, yeah, we, we know that he's interested enough to go see the proprietor that... Dr. Treves explains himself that he's one of the curious who'd like to see. Before we get to that, I think that the route going to there is very mm. notable. Like, mm -hmm. before this whole dialogue comes through. Sure, sure. He has to make his way towards there, and he's going through more so of the slums, if you it, will. It feels like inside. a portal. It feels like you're entering another world. It, Not to be overdramatic, but it's there's a sort of trespassing, almost. A sort of going from one realm to another an underbelly and i love that you say that because during this time as it's very loud mm -hmm. it is very sort of dark and damp yes you dank one could say no that's actually the term that's uh, a term it doesn't matter it feels more damp than dank it's probably moist nope damp if there's something that emphasized a word mm. more in the scene it's damp dank and moist i, I live by each their own but if you notice like very closely, the way that Treves holds his umbrella, uh -huh. he's holding it at his side, at his hand, at the ready, almost as if the, if something were to happen to him, he could brandish this thing it's, as a it's weapon. It's like the Star Wars Visions episode where the person has the lightsabers and the umbrella. It's maybe. 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 But no, he's holding it as if, like, if he needs to use this, he will. But only when he makes it all the way to the Elephant Man tapestry, where it's mm -hmm. been noted on, does he switch hands and put it at a more casual, what mm -hmm. you would expect position. It's not out at the ready. It's uh, the looped end off to the other sure. side. As soon as Bites comes around, mm -hmm. almost as if he's letting down his guard. Again, great sort of, like, small, detailed visual storytelling. I, 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 I consume it. Anyway, speaking of the sort of visual storytelling, when he does see the elephant man here, I think it's interesting that he doesn't really say anything. He's wordless. He's speechless. Mm -hmm. He just kind of looks at him wide eyed and then we see him pay off bites. Yeah. Not long after, though, he says very much that he would like to examine John and basically solicits john's time through by paying the proprietor he's renting a man he's renting a man and all the implications they might have and bites is a whole lot to talk about what bites thinks is happening with all of this oh you and i we're the same but <laughs> dr treves whether you assume he's trying to do this to like mm, this is someone i could show off to the scientific community and i could i could get some attention and some money and some funding and yes so hmm yes or if he's legitimately just curious scientifically or empathetically, whatever his reasons might be, he, he wants to 
figure out Merrick, figure out this puzzle. And so he starts asking him questions. And for quite a while, it seems as if Joseph, or John Merrick, I should say, got to catch myself on that, John Merrick can't speak. And he kind of just goes off head shaking and head nodding instead of speech. And it's not like Merrick is even doing that at first either. Kind of this gradual kind of getting to know him. Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting how the people at the hospital are reacting because shortly after John Merrick is brought there, before it's widely known, one of the other doctors or scientists there just kind of pulls him aside. It's like, what you got there? Seems like quite a quite a find. Oh, yeah, like really excited about it, right? Yeah. So you kind of wonder if internally Dr. Treves is thinking the same thing. Yes. Or if he is not like that. Yes, it's, it's something in which the reactions sort of range between there is a curiosity that goes into it, which is oftentimes emphasized into the male end, as opposed towards the fear aspect, which is very dramatically towards the female end. With notable exceptions. With notable exceptions here and there. You but- got your you got your, your Mother Mary pure women characters that can do no wrong, mm-hmm. who see his true humanity. I mean, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes she or just Or they wants- just scream. Sometimes she just says that, no, I, I'm trying to help him out, but this is just no proper place for him. Yes. But yeah, regardless, it, there's still a majority amongst them. I, I, I hardly see many exceptions where there are the men that are afraid of him. This is true, and, and I'm curious, what do you make of that? Like, we don't know how much that's a machination of the film and how much is based on people's accounts. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that gendered aspect of the reactions? I think the gendered aspects of the reactions are more hyperbolic of what was to be expected, mm-hmm. if you will. Like, this is where the advertisements would come in that would emphasize the sort of gendered role of, yeah. the, no, this will horrify the women. And so to have that perpetuated through the film uh, to try to prove such a point is just trying to add to that sort of tail end perspective as i don't think that much would be said onto the male end mm. onto that i don't imagine that there'd be advertisements of like men screaming in terror and fear. right it's not I, a sensationalized I, it's not sensationalized no and, and i think it gets more complicated too when we consider who the women are specifically you know if they're high class high society women who've been kind of conditioned and pampered by society to not see the more unsettling aspects of the human condition. I'm sorry, but most people don't. I think that most the gen- people don't. I think the gender end is bullshit, but I do understand where the bullshit is coming right. from. Right there, there is a conditioning that happens that yes. these women were raised a certain way to be proper ladies. If they're high class, high society, other women you see brought in are kind of in that sort of more back alley bar sort of scene okay. that are either they've been drinking. Mm-hmm. Or they're kind of in this sort of party mood when they're brought into this this site suddenly. So I, I do think it's it's not just the gendered aspect, but going into the gendered aspect, the specific varieties of women who are freaking out. The the high class society women who've been maybe conditioned to not necessarily um, they have to be a lady all the time, the, and then the the people who have been kind of brought there under these oftentimes false pretenses to be taken advantage of by these sleazy men from the bars. Other than I would say the head nurse, I would say that a lot of the female representation in this film is highly aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said about Mrs. Kendall in terms of her contributions. She doesn't seem to bat an eye at. Merrick at all? She's strangely interested. I had yeah. some sort of ideas like, wait, is this somewhat like 
possibly like the, the mother figure trying to reach right. out. Um, but it was just like, again, the photo was bogus. Um, but no, she just has a strange fascination, comes forward with a book, and that does kickstart things for Mr. Merrick. Yeah. But not much else is from her in the film or mm-hmm. present whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, there's also the daughter of the queen. I don't know if she's the daughter. I know who you're talking about. Kind of like yeah. a, at the board meeting, they like bring the, up that message. I am pretty sure it's the daughter of the queen. Well, the queen are, yeah, we'll get to there when we get to there, but yeah. Yes, in which she is presented to still be very thankful of the lost son being helped and saved. But at the same time, she is present there as more so of a order, yeah, a, a passive order. More than anything. There's, there's a lot to be said about this movie in terms of its gender portrayals, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Uh, returning to Dr. Treves, if you <laughs> if you will allow me to do that. Uh, we have him showing John Merrick off to a community of scientists and other doctors. And it's interesting how it's framed because we see him through this like screen, kind of a silhouette. By this point in the movie, we still haven't got a full look at John Merrick like all the time. It's it's sometimes we'll get a little glimpse here and there, but not full view. Yeah. And and we don't really see him as the others see him in the room. It's framed that way that we just see the silhouette. And the way the reactions happen is that we get Dr. Treves explaining his condition, the various effects of it, from his skull to his spine, his loose skin, his chronic bronchitis, and he explains all of these different effects. And randomly in the midst of this, he says that in spite of all this, his genitals remain intact and unaffected. I'm like, okay. And then we get this ending of the speech. Everyone applauds, and they're they're so happy that he shared this man's condition. And... Again, this is where I feel like he's benefiting off displaying him, not for jeering audiences, not for frightened audiences, Mm -hmm. but for an audience of people who want to study him as an anomaly. Now, I will, again, give kudos because the the good point of the cinematography here, as well as the scene prior, is all based on how one would view John Merrick, one as this very mystical sort of, like, being that is being presented. This one, in which it's being a case study, in which it's almost mysterious, but only, like, pieces are emphasized. Mm -hmm. But when we get John Merrick into a room and have him sit down, there's no more need of trying to work around or censor anymore. At that point, Mm -hmm. it's just someone resting, trying to find peace with himself, something that becomes more human. He's not being presented. Yes, exactly. And I I think that that's excellent. Yes. But? Is there a but coming? But, I forgot my other point. I was just so, (laughs) I got lost in the sort of visuals inside of my head. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I feel like the movie implies a connection between Dr. Treves showing him off this way and Bites showing him off at the freak show. But I think the movie is smarter than trying to say they're like the same thing, man, because they aren't. They're mm-hmm. they're doing different things for different reasons. And I'm not saying that the doctors get off the hook entirely, but clearly them trying to understand more about the human anatomy and trying to develop their science mm-hmm. is not as low and gross and I'd argue inhumane as going to get entertainment by laughing at someone or taking your girlfriends there to scare them. I, to me, that is a much more base kind of thing that <laughs> I feel like it's not the same thing. I just, I do think it hangs an implication in the air that John Merrick is still being presented. He's still being shared, even if it's not the same kind of thing. Yes. Uh, Afterward, John says, I can't remember who, I think there's another doctor there. Maybe it's the the lady at the head nurse. I can't remember. But he says that um, 
John is an imbecile. That's the word he uses. That John is someone with maybe severe intellectual difficulties. Mm -hmm. And he says he prays to God that he's a complete idiot. Um, hoping that this man isn't self-aware uh, for fear of what that might have done to him. Yeah. You know, you, you imagine someone who's had to endure this sort of abuse and knowing that they look so different from everyone around them, that sort of worry that that might make someone miserable. Mm -hmm. And and do you believe that John Merrick is miserable as portrayed in this movie? Yes. Yes. I would say mostly yes. The only part that makes me think an exception is that he comes out of, once he, once he starts developing speech more, once he starts communicating more, he, he has a sort of optimism and sort of purity to his sort of way of loving everyone and reacting to everyone that once he's in a place where he's comfortable and safe, he, he's able to see the good in people, mm -hmm. which is something that you might not necessarily expect out of someone who's been so severely mistreated by probably every human being in his life, save the implications of his mother. I think that sees the good in people might be a little bit too far. I think that he sees good in people. He sees good with people. I mean, I think I, they're very similar terms. I, I think they're similar, but to emphasize the point as mm, well, mm -hmm. there's points where John, say for example, is with other individuals that are of higher status because of recently with the head actress, head of the theater, uh, Mrs. Kendall, and her presence and them appearing. It, it's almost as if it's puppetry. It's almost as if it, they are doing it for the status of it as... Mm -hmm emphasized inside the film. What good can come from that other than them being well-mannered? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, John taking it in strides and very happy and engaging with them in the conversation with most of this other pieces of the larger picture going completely over his head. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that there's more so of a an intellect mixed with a childlike wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think no small part of this demeanor that he has is due to his religious inclinations, his approach to religion and faith. Um, during Dr. Treves's lessons in trying to get Merrick to vocalize more, yeah. uh, he teaches him to recite Psalm 23. When he does this, he teaches him up to a certain point and is then surprised later when he catches him uh, reciting past the point where he had taught him, yes. which is where he finds out that Merrick reads the Bible every day. Yes. And is, is very well versed in it. I, I thought I would just pull up in case we want to dissect anything what Psalm 23 reads as. So I'm just going to go ahead and read Psalm 23 here for us and see if there's anything that stands out as interesting thematically that this one was chosen. By all means. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So... Are there any particular things that stand out about why Psalm 23 may have been chosen? Um, I do not know if there's like a historical element to Psalm 20. I mean, I know it's one of the biggest ones. I know it's one of the most common ones. I just don't know if there's any specific reason like historically it's important 
other than just the words themselves and the fact that it is generally famous. I think that the fact that Mr. Mayor keeps such a more levity to him mm-hmm. is emphasized in this because being feeling that he is not necessarily alone and this good fortune that he may have recently come across may have been in good faith mm-hmm. from the faith that he follows. Right. I, I think that there is an aspect that it gives him peace more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And to have that sort of fall along even at the worst of times especially around bites. Right. It, it makes sense why that would mean so much to him. Sure. And I feel like the moment that Merrick is able to vocalize through speech, that is where Dr. Treves truly is able to form a connection with him. Yeah. Prior, he had, he had shown him kindness. He had spoken positive words that he'll be safe here. He'll have everything he wants here. He, he accommodated for him, but he was kind of convinced that he wasn't really capable of human connection and once speech enters the situation it's not too long after that Treves and him become rather close and Treves is showing him pictures of his children he introduces them to his wife uh he introduces that actress uh Kendall right and um it, it seems like that's the point of opening up that that was the necessary requirement for that empathy element mm-hmm the necessary requirement for empathy. Yeah, no, I think that at this point he's trying to open various doors for Mr. Merrick to the point that, again, it one one wonders where it borders on experiment on right. social aspects for someone who has not had many of these social aspects as opposed towards how much of it is just genuinely trying to work with someone, trying to make sure that they open up. Well, because it's not too long after that that Dr. Treves is allowing these rather high society people in London to go visit John Merrick. Yes. And he's asked about this. You know, he's asked, you know, why do you let them see him when, you know, they don't hide that they're disgusted by him and they're just seeing him to prove to themselves and other people in high society that they're that they're kind of like able to handle it almost, that they can do this. It's like a showing off sort of thing for them. And it's it's still putting him on display. He's being stared at all over again. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Treves, Dr. Treves insists that, you know, Merrick likes these people and it's good for him. So it, don't worry, it's a good thing. But yeah, he does kind of put them out there. Is it a social experiment? Is it genuinely because he thinks that it is best for Merrick? Yeah. I don't know. I think it, maybe call him A, maybe call him B, as you might say. I think that's, again, the... The crowd is where I think that it's less acceptable. I think that introducing these individuals that are in it for something is where I think a line needs to be drawn. Like, and, and Treves does have self awareness enough to question this sometimes. Yes, because he does realize later he's like me, and you know, I'm I'm like bites. I have that similarity. I'm exploiting him for profit. His wife is the one saying like, no, he's happier. He's better off for this. But Treves is like still lingering on it at the end of that scene. He's like, am I a good man or am I a bad man? He's looking at it in terms of this binary. Yes, and and it, I don't necessarily know if by the end he's settled on an answer. I think it's implied he's accepted himself, but. I don't know if we ever get a solid answer of how Dr. Shreves feels about the whole ordeal by the end of it. I think he just wants to help him, you know, survive by no, the very I, end. I think that the emphasis on his sort of lostness in his own moral conundrums is especially emphasized in the theater scene. Right. This horrible, horrible theater scene in which... John is engaged in it. He adores it. But as he watches that performance, as 
it seems that Treves is distracted by another performance, whether it is just looking at Mr. Merrick as a whole mm-hmm. or looking at Mr. Merrick's reactions as he's engaging with the theater itself. Like, mm-hmm. what is it, looking into the joys of a man or looking at the man itself and still constantly seeing the ghost as if one were Macbeth? I almost imagined it as a sort of empathy toward a friend, like seeing him, knowing he doesn't have that much long, much longer. He knows that he's dying soon. I almost, I almost imagine he's like keeping an eye on him and making sure that what's happening is okay. I, I took it as more of a comforting friend looking. Uh-huh. And I, I guess, cause at that point in the film, I think he genuinely, his main priority is making sure that this person uh, has a good last few days, like that they, that they have those good moments. So I, I read it rather positively on his account that he's looking at him with concern and making sure that, above all else, that Merrick is having the time of his life at this play. I think that as far as my reading goes, I still find it's lost. I still mm, think that mm-hmm. he's still trying to find those answers. And I do think that Treves is cut off before he has found something satisfactory for himself through what he's done with Mr. Merrick. I think that with Mr. Merrick, especially with the soon to be passing mm-hmm. and especially when he does depart from the room, right? I think that he can somewhat understand that he likely won't have any sort of concrete end of, did I do something wrong? Yes or no. And that's kind of stuck with him. It's almost like a grieving period mm-hmm. of the mind. I wish I could say we're going to move away from all these dreary topics, but this movie has a lot of them. It, it is dreary. And you, the next thing... You could thing, almost say that it bites. The next thing on my list is perhaps one of the more disturbing characters, definitely one of the more disturbing characters, is Bites. Yeah, I had the good transition. Thank you. You had a really good one. I yep. appreciate it. I, I just continued anyway. So, uh, he's a strange man. Um, there's undertones and overtones in his speech patterns where he's calling Merrick like my treasure. He is has that moment you mentioned earlier when he's talking to Dr. Treves and he says how you and I understand each other. Like there's a sort of weird camaraderie that he thinks he has when we have that request to borrow or rent this man. When Treves arrives, he's like suspicious of him, you know, like who sent you? Why are you here? But then when he ends up taking the money and he's asked like are you the proprietor? He just awkwardly kind of like pauses and says, I'm the owner. Like, like that's that's important to emphasize rather than proprietor. I think that it does, there's a dynamic between them that could be, the best way that I can emphasize it, again, to emphasize Mr. Merrick is a person, the way that he has been treated is by far just disgusting. Right. But I think that the best example towards how each of them are treating is that one of them is treating Mr. Merrick as a pet and like, this is mine. This is, I treat this. I treat Merrick. However, I see fit because I know what's best for him. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, one of them more so treats Mr. Merrick more so as again, not saying this into the person, but more so of the style of the, absenceness between the person, mm. but almost as if that they are bringing him into a zoo yeah, and then domesticating him because that's the goal I think that's at a first fair comparison. That's the first thing that he does. He tries yeah. his best to try to make sure that he behaves properly mm-hmm. and believes that at first he just absolutely lacks intelligence before he kind of yeah. gets blown away. And at that point he's kind of like 
tilty and off his rocker, kind of like being blown away by what Mr. America is doing from right. that point on. Because at that point, Treves has far less control. Yes. It's, it, it, it is a wild dynamic, but it also does emphasize the point. They are different in many ways, but in, in some ways they are mm. very similar. The film also frames, I think, Merrick's origins a little abstractly in the sense that I feel like the main one mythologizing Merrick's origin is Bites in the movie, where mm-hmm. when he's introducing the Elephant Man at this show, you know, he, he explains in kind of this oratory style that you know, his mother was struck down four months into her pregnancy by a wild elephant on an uncharted African isle. So it feels very much like he's setting up this like legendary entity that's about to appear. It's and, his job. And and yeah, he's selling the selling the what the situation, selling the show. And because we never really get a confirmation on like what happened with the mother, we, we're left to wonder like, is this all fictional for the sake of performance, or is there any truth to some of these elements within the scope of the movie? I mean, there's obviously like especially with the horrible poster that does not look like yeah. any one no. at all, especially not Mr. Merrick. Right. Yeah, I, I, I feel towards the showmanship area, right. but obviously no confirmation. No confirmation. Little anecdote from IMDb as well. The idea that a fright to a mother, by a way, might cause deformity in her child was a fairly common idea in that time period. So, like, yeah. it was still in medical textbooks as late as the 1950s mm-hmm. that if a mother got, like, super scared by something, her child could become deformed mm. in a physical way. Uh. So this was, I mean, again, science has come a long way. Science People did not know any way. better. Mm-hmm. And they probably should have in some cases, but this is one of those cases where, yeah, it was still a widely believed idea. Yep, yep. So, so Bites, I think, is the main one mythologizing and kind of, we don't know how long exactly he's been with Merrick, but he, he takes on this weird sort of almost paternal role. Yes. But the, the worst kind. Yep. Um, It's hard to know how extensive the abuse is. We know that he hits Merrick. We know that he threatens him. We know that it berates him and yells at him. But there are certain, like, sexual undertones that also have me very uncomfortable with him. He he implies a lot of his words with a sort of sadism in his tone, which, yeah. again, I'm not trying to shame lifestyles if you're not harming people, but this guy's harming people. Yep, like, a lot of he, people. His form of sadism feels very manipulative and, and very much the kind that he is not caring about the consent of the people involved. But again, I bring up the sexual un- undertones here because when he's talking to Dr. Trees, when they're business partners, he says, he says, there are a lot of things I could do for you. He says he moves around in these circles a lot. Anything at all if you take my meaning. So it, it, at least the way it reads to me, and I don't think I'm the only one feeling this way, right, is that he's implying that I could get you connections. You could, I could find other people for you. And I don't know exactly what he thinks Dr. Treves is after, but it does feel like he's soliciting him for something. Like he's like, hey, I could find other people that you could rent from me, and there's all kinds of folks out there. And I think that it's the question of whether or not it is just paralleling that emotion or if it is one-to-one, hey... You, you get the vibe, though. It is, yeah, yep. It's 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 really uh, very strange. Like, he, he reads the situation of this doctor coming in, not as someone pursuing a scientific curiosity, but as someone who is of the same spirit as himself. And if Bites thinks that they're the same kind of person and he says these things, 
what is he doing? What is Bites doing in his own personal life here? I don't want to know, I don't wanna know either. And I, I guess I want that's, him to be rested. This is where we get in that uncomfortable zone of we know that his abuse is physical. We know that it's emotional, but is it also sexual? And that's where I don't know if the film ever leans on an answer. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, like you said, I don't want to know. Like it's, it's, I think almost in leaving it open, leaving the implication, it makes Bites even more just abstractly gross. Yep. Because we don't know exactly how far he'll go. We don't know exactly what he means when he thinks that Dr. Treves and him are the same. We just have an idea, and I don't uh, like the idea. Uh, nope. nope. For nope, nope, a nope, lot nope. of the movie, he's not present. Bites kind of uh, takes a back seat, but he does come back more prominently later on. Yes. There comes a point where the night porter has started to show people uh, Merrick yep. over at the hospital. And after the night porter leaves, other people leave, we see that Bites has kind of snuck his way into the room. And he calls him his treasure. He reaches over and kind of just like strokes his head. Again, almost like, like I said, like a pet. More than even as a parent. Actually, he didn't need to sneak in at all. He, he paid him. In fact, it parallels the scene mm. of, say, for example, when Treves was first paying off Bites, saying, hey, here's a little bit of extra money. Let me see this. Now, Bites is doing the same thing to the porter, being like, hey, you said that you didn't have any extra spots. Here's some extra money. You got any extra spots now? Yes. And he actually even follows along, almost trails off a little bit behind. Yeah. And it's almost as if, like, it's this creeping, deranged man, almost like how one would feel when, like, the horror villain. Yeah. Uh, or the uh, slasher villain, right. more appropriately, is getting closer and closer towards our protagonists. And do you believe that he went in with the intention, like the moment he paid, do you think he went in with the intention of like, if this is Merrick, I am going to take him? Or do you think he went in the intention of, I want to see my treasure. And then as the conversation, as he, as he was there in that moment, seized by his emotion, like now's my chance to take him. Like, which way do you think it went? Was it planned or was it not planned? No, I think that he was planning. I think that having this large crowd would push Merrick to a very heavily emotional state that, especially with the return of Bites, would lead him to be almost to the point of sniveling and weak Mm -hmm. from the whole exercise, making him far more easy to detain, as opposed towards if he tries to sneak in alone, not only does he have to work his way around an unfamiliar place right. and try to make it around all the people that the night porter sh- tries to get past. We'll get back to the night porter. Oh, absolutely. But this way he can almost secure his own end victory towards this yeah. and just wait until everything has subsided and just sneak away because, Hey, there were so many witnesses. They all saw him right around here. Who's Could to be, say? Yeah, exactly. Could be any of them. And, and I, I agree with you. I think it was premeditated as well. Um, he captures John Merrick, and, and I, I thought it was France they went to, but I was reading it was Belgium, which, coincidence. We talked about Belgium earlier at the Hi. beginning here. Uh, supposedly it was Belgium, and he takes him back on the road for his show, and John Merrick is just immediately in a far worse state. Like, yes. it, is, it is, he went from being on the road to eloquent speech to great, like, social relationships with these people and, and just generally living probably the best life he's ever lived, definitely the best life he's ever lived, yep. to just being worse than he was at the beginning of the movie. I won't lie. I was thoroughly believing that this was just going to be the end of John Merrick. I mm-hmm. thought that was going to end very bitterly, right. in which he does get the sleep that he's been seeking out, but mm-hmm. it's to escape the nightmares that he's had, to have at least one 
good final rest. Yeah. But no, we actually continue on. He performs, but he collapses because likely his health is not the, the best, whether mm-hmm. it is uh, emotional health or physical health, because both are in question around this point in the film. And when Bites did not like that, Bites who especially did not like that, with his overall reaction being, let's lock him up with the monkeys. Well, and at this point, he's drunk, right? And his and his speech has become to the point where he's saying things like, you know, let him die, but don't think I'm going to bury that bag of flesh. So he's just in his desperation because Merrick's not performing the way he wants him to. He's, he's, he's ceased to be valuable as a property yeah. when he's not putting on a good show. People are to the extent where they're not even entertained by it. It's too sad to look at. They spat him. And I say it as the show, obviously. They spat at him being Bites, right. not Mary. No, they're, they're, they're more upset at Bites than they are amused or angry or scared at the show itself of Merrick. Mm-hmm. And going back to the kind of that complicated nature of the, the freak show environment itself, I think it is, is very interesting and in telling that the people who end up freeing John Merrick are others that were there at the show who appear to be there more voluntary. They do not appear to be owned the way that Merrick is. Or at the very least, it's not emphasized with Bites in his current state. Definitely not treated well. Definitely working under a very terrible person. Yes, they basically acquire themselves uh, into this larger group in order to help escort Mr. Merrick. But, but like the, they don't try to run away. Like they, they free him and that's as far as we know what happens. Like they free him and they walk him to yes. the near ship, which also very notably, despite the fact that his whole like show yeah. walks out on him, the boy stays. Like the yeah. boy kinda like looks the boy who accompanies bites throughout the film, this young cockney accented boy mm-hmm. just kinda like looks back at where bites is and looks at the group that's walking away. And chooses not to follow. Kind of almost like perpetuating the cycle of abuse that's likely going Mm. to come his way after discovering that everything's gone. Speaking of cycles of abuse, the Night Porter. Yeah. So I don't know if the Night Porter is... I mean, it can't be worse than Bites, I don't think. No, He's good competition. Now, here's the thing... Bad, I don't, like, people can do bad things, and I'm sure that in certain levels, eventually you meet with separate thresholds that suddenly change you into a homicidal maniac. In this respect, they're bad in different flavors, not necessarily on different levels. I find this person to be bad because he's still profiting similar to how Bites is, but it is in this sort of gleeful, quick, erratic way that he feels, like, so justified so on top of the world mm-hmm. with himself that even when like after everything's happened even when there's literally a sniveling man before him that he can't empathize with even when he is met with multiple people confronting him onto it he still sticks so heavily towards his guns onto it that i imagine that if like like headmother didn't knock him on the back of the head i'm sure he would have been back the very next night now professor i hear what you're saying but I feel like the real reason you don't like this guy is because his name is Sonny Jim. And it's giving you it's giving you these these memories. It's reawakening a certain memory of a certain David Lynch short film that you watched called Pierre and Sonny Jim. You can find it on YouTube.com. I'd encourage you to look it up if you haven't watched it already. And I think that that three-minute video that felt like five hours to you uh, has made you have this, this certain feeling about Sonny Jim, the, the night porter. 
the entire time yes. that you tried to make this argument, <laughs> make this statement, all yes. I could hear was the audio from yep. Sunny Jim. Now, I, I, Khalil, I, do, I don't want to start reenacting no, that be very funny, at this though. time. Because I, I, the thing is, Khalil, is that one person falls in the middle of it. And I assure you, that's not going to be me. Oh, no. You will, then you will no longer be second in command. You can start making the money. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That I don't make either. Um, so, <laughs> Sonny Jim, we don't know for sure if it's his name. The way he says it, he's at the bar and he says, like, you know, get your tickets here from your good, good old Sonny Jim. Good old Sonny Jim. And, like, those subtitles say Sonny S U N N Y, not S O N N Y. Uh, so it's like. Because subtitles have always been trusted. Right. We don't know. But if, if that is the case. I think the credits call him Night Porter. I don't believe they call him Sonny Jim. They do not call him Sonny Jim. Is Sonny Jim a nickname, or is that his actual name? I don't think it's a common phrase. I was looking into it. Like, I don't think it is. Ah, it's called Sonny Jim. But the fact that Lynch has held on to it so much. Maybe it's a common phrase to Lynch. Lynch works in his own little vocabulary sometimes. Yes. Um, little wins, you know, or mm-hmm. a thing you always talking about. Little moldy wins. What I will say, though, what I will say, though, this is not a spoiler maybe, but... The reason I told you to put a pin in Sunny Jam when we did our short films episode Ouch. was not because of Sunny Jim the Night Porter. Ouch because again. when I mentioned that I chose Sunny Jim for a reason, I didn't even remember that the Night Porter ever called himself this. I wasn't even thinking about the Elfin Man. There is another separate reason why Sunny Jim matters. Here we've already kind of indicated a potential connection. Because we talked about that the the magician, the boy in Twin Peaks. The, the little little Tremont Chalfont boy mm-hmm. is, is called Pierre. So I, I've told you about that, that potential connection. Uh, but the Sunny Jim one, keep that pin in there. I, f- I feel like we're just going to retread this ground yet again, and hey. I'm going to be as lost as I've ever been, if not maybe more frustrated. Let me out, Khalil. Now, if only, if only someone would let... Poor John Merrick out of the situation the night porters put him in. See there, I segued. Effectively. So right through a wall. Right through a wall. So from the Turner Classic Movies website, uh, quote, one of Lynch's contributions to the screenplay, which was again penned by Christopher DeVore and Eric Bergren, was the character of the hospital night porter, who torments Merrick and continually treats him as a circus freak. So the night porter is not based on any historical account. There is no like person that the night porter is based on from the source material of history it's just a david lynch original what do you make of that i imagine that it's just another character to emphasize the darker ends of humanity that are not willing to understand or look at things onto the surface level and that's very much what the night porter feels like he feels like someone who navigates in the surface level that's what i feel like whenever it comes towards Two ladies of the night and the man who really wants yeah. to get a closer look. They are acting very surface level. It is the people who do not want to go deeper and instead are looking for their own personal good times. And sometimes that is to the detriment of people such as Merrick. And I you know, I have these notes in front of me and I'm just kind of thinking like the Night Porter is one of the simplest characters, I feel, like in this story. And maybe... I don't know if you'd agree with that or not, but I feel like he's he doesn't have that many layers to them in the movie. He's he's just a very distilled 
form of disgusting. <laughs> oh, I'm just like you. Here you go. Here's a little bit of coin. <laughs> I feel like I've. I feel like the way that I presented him is how Craig Ferguson would present him. And now I'm thinking to myself, he seems like a Craig Ferguson caricature. But not in a good way. No, not, not in a Not good in way. a robot skeleton, puppet, hor- people in horse costume kind of way. If if you guys have not seen Craig Ferguson, please just Google it sometime. Google him. The, the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. The Late Late Show to. with Craig Ferguson. Or anything with him. I feel like you'll get a better understanding of us that way. Anyway, his his openings in his show were especially notable. Spawned us I up a long, long time. Anyway, anyway, before we get copyright struck by Craig Ferguson, uh, <laughs> not sponsored, but also hey, Craigy baby. You know what? Uh, that, no, hey, I ruined Craig. it. I called him Craigy baby. I'm sorry, Craigie. sir. No, 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 no. Craigy baby. Trust me. Daddy Bezos doesn't mean anything to us. It's all about you. He'll be second uncle twice removed, Bezos, mm. Mm. who can still give us money from his moon. Mm. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I don't have a lot to say. I think we can kind of skip around here a little bit. Uh, ominous vibes, though, when he first meets Merrick, you know, he notices that he doesn't speak, and he's, like, talking about how he likes it when people can't speak out. That's a, that's a, that's what we call red flag in the business. That's what we call bad person alert. Possibly to the extent of it feels very exaggerated, like, I'm not going to say The Elephant Man feels like a, a movie that's based in realism. There's definitely some weird editing, some weird choices. Yes. But The Night Porter feels the most cartoony. Yep. I'm I'm willing to believe that, like, Bites is exaggerated, but there's elements of kind of believability here. Porter, The Night Porter, it feels like especially fictional, and I don't know how I feel about that. It's one of those elements that I'm a little mixed on. He's such a distillation of creepy that I'm like, I don't know if I believe he's a human being in this world. I think that if it was just him sort of like hanging out in random locations, sure. But I think that the fact that he hangs out mostly at the local tavern yeah. is most notable. Again, it's for simple, quick pleasures. I think that that being the realm that he sort of preys on and basically gallivants in is that, again, emphasis on just very, just easy, just right there on the surface, as I've said, sort of pleasure. And I think that that's also important because I feel that the entertainment is just that. It's something in which we're seeing more laughter, we're seeing more joy come from the situations, as opposed towards just the chaos and the, I would say, almost dramatic sense uh, that we get from something like bites and his mm. presentations is almost the comedy to the drama, the happy face to the sad when you yeah. consider those masks, whenever it comes to showmanship mm-hmm. and the use of theater. In fact, that even just brings more into the ideas of theater that are emphasized. Yeah. In I can see movie that too. I can see that. I, I feel like, yes, obviously the night Porter is a real physical person in the movie. He, he has an effect on the world that I don't think he's like imaginary or something, but I do feel like he, he ends up feeling almost, almost metaphorical in the sense of mm-hmm. he is the night. Like there's that, there's that part where it has like his it's little dialogue, not, not Batman, but he, but, he's, <laughs> Boy, I'm Batman. but he says like nighttime, like very ominously before, like they go on their little night quest. And, and also kind of along with that, he just feels like a walking premonition um, the way he always, like, not always, but the way he consistently is shown either in a vision or in reality or in a dream blur, who knows, threatening Merrick with a mirror, like, the way he kind of takes on the sort of larger-than-life looming element. He's not mm-hmm. there very often in the movie, but when he is, 
he does feel a little bit like a heightened reality. Mm-hmm. I, again, he's not an imaginary person. I don't think he's he's in the head of John Merrick. I mean, like, but I do think he is someone who feels. You could tell Lynch kind of wrote him more than the other characters. Like you could tell he's not grounded. There's yep. a sense of heightened reality with him that I do think is interesting, even if maybe not fitting for the rest of the movie. Yeah. I was kind of surprised that Mrs. Kendall, just changing subjects rapidly here, I was kind of surprised that she didn't have more of a role in the movie. Like, when I was looking at the casting, you know, it listed, like, you know, Anthony Hopkins and, and John Hurt, and then, like, the third name was Anne Bancroft. I'm like, oh, she's the main, she's the third main character. And, like, yeah, eh, eh, maybe. I, think, I mean, I don't know. I think Bites and the Night Porter had more of a role so far. but They had, duration-wise, yeah. more of a presence, but... But I do think that Kendall's important, and she's a big name. She's a big name actor. I she's, get that. She's a big name. Totally actor. top billing, and and I and I mean no disrespect. Like I thought her performance was good. I, it's just it surprised me. I kind of went in because it's been a while since I've seen Elephant Man. I'd only seen the Elephant Man once, and it was one of the earlier movies I saw when I watched Lynch films years ago for the first time. Like you know, it wasn't like a racer. I would have watched it multiple times. I forgot a lot of this movie. I just remember the, the big strokes of it. I kind of forgot the role of Mrs. Kendall in this movie, so I expected it to be more than it was. I think that Mrs. Kendall is an emphasis on... It seems that out of all the characters, unless she is very, very good at wearing a mask yeah. as one... Well, she's, a, she's an actor. Exactly. That Again, I'm not throwing away the fact that she is able to yeah. be far more human to Merrick than anyone else. It doesn't it, feel like she has any hurdles to jump over. She just immediately just sees him as a person and connects. Yep. And after their encounter and after that opportunity, that's when things sort of skyrocket for Merrick mm-hmm. with the additional visits. And likely it also was eventually to bring attention to the queen, seeing as that yeah. they do see your shows. So the, Character of Mrs. Kendall is based on a real person. I looked up a Wikipedia, but the Wikipedia article cited a source of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. So if you want a more official sounding source, that's where the information came from from Wikipedia. But the quote is... Books don't make sounds. Although she probably never met him in person, she helped to raise funds and public sympathy for him. Mm. So the real Mrs. Kendall was an actor, was famous... But it's unlikely, from what we can tell, she ever actually met Merrick. More so that she heard about it and raised funds and sympathy. Okay. So it is embellishment to have her suddenly like meet him. A little bit sway- straying from the truth. Okay. But in the heart of her reputation, she was known as one of his biggest public supporters. Okay. Make of that as you will for historical accuracy. I will. And one of the main scenes she gets with him is where they're reenacting part of Romeo and Juliet. Um, I didn't know if you had any particular thoughts on that scene, why Romeo and Juliet, why Shakespeare. I kind of talked a little bit about the appeal to tradition that Shakespeare kind of represents. You can't get any more like high art humanity than Shakespeare probably for a lot of people. I think that's less about the romantic end to it, but more so the end of unrequited love to end in mm-hmm. tragedy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think is the important end. Again, it's something that Merrick might necessarily need. Again, maybe not in a romantic sense, but to be seen and to be felt and to be loved. Well, and to go on to that line, there is a point in which Mrs. Kendall says, the theater is the most beautiful place on earth. The theater is romance. Yes. So if we're going to link thematically 
theater as being one of the great joys of Merrick's life, even though he'd only gone to one performance. Uh, great joy in his life that the theater, and this is where I think the movie does have some interesting elements that I maybe have not considered until our discussion right now. The weird tension in this movie between the misery of Merrick of being put on as a performance, mm-hmm. the, the mocking derision of the freak show, the perhaps more neutral abstract curiosity of the scientists both ways just something being put to look at the high society people coming and going to look at him to see the thing to see the the scary man and all the kind of dehumanizing elements of that and yet there is that fixation in him on the performance the theater the 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 actors um obviously the terms of an actor are very different they are willingly putting forth this show that they have in some way been given a role and mold and mold themselves into it. But I almost wonder if there's a sense in which Merrick's connection of it implies in that element that he understands that unwillingly, perhaps in an abused situation. Yes. He had been in a performance himself that he can identify maybe with that feeling, but this time it's something dignified, not something undignified to see it being done in a way where what if a crowd didn't mock you or throw things at you? What if they applauded you? What if they marveled at your amazing talent instead of just looked at you and gawked? Yeah. I agree with all those statements and don't let this tone. I'm letting the tone. I'm I'm letting the tone. What's with the tone? It's not a, there's some good dancing. Oh, you just, okay. We'll get to you. We'll get to your problems with the show. Do you agree with my reading of it? Do you have any different ideas? No, I think that that's a great emphasis. I think you did a good job. It's just we're in the theater now. So the theater performance. Um, This seems to have a way more profound effect on you than it had on me. Yeah. This was fine for me. I thought it this was is, okay. It's chaotic. It's Elements are so... Have I ever showed you... <laughs> you can tell me about what you can show me later, but the sheer amount of just, like, movement. At first, it feels ballet-like, but as just, like, each of these sort of characters move very independently and on their own, there's not much sort of feeling of interaction or engagement or anything. And when it ends, there's an engagement, but at the same time, the fairy flies over in which most of the crowd would miss the engagement. But this is poorly put together, Khalil. This is... I'm going to make make the most obscure comparison our podcast will ever make. Mm. It reminds me of a made-for-children DVD called Magic Backyard. (laughs) So Magic Backyard, if you're ever ever able to watch it and acquire it, it is a, I would call it a surrealist masterpiece, unintentionally. It is a movie in which these two kids are in a backyard and they're bored and they just start imagining the things that they could do in their backyard. But it just goes from set piece to set piece with basically they're in their backyard and then all of a sudden what if a magician was here and then suddenly Dan Chan the magic man is there and he's performing he's doing wild things the music's super dramatic and they're like wow oh look a train and then they go on this train and they go on an adventure and then they end up at the zoo and they see all the zoo animals and then they're like underwater and they're in the hot air balloon they're just they're just going one thing happens one thing happens one thing happens and it's just an overlord you're like how did we get here what is time and space what who where did dan chan the magic man go 
Um, and I, and, I, and this is the main comparison point I would have. So if you liked this like five minute performance, you would love that like forty five minute Magic Backyard DVD. I'm really pushing the selling point on this DVD. <laughs> I own a copy, by the way. I'm listener. <laughs> I don't know what I did in a past life, but I. I, I think that Khalil is like the punishment. I'm your I'm sleep paralysis for. demon. <laughs> I'm I'm not <laughs> even like completely unconvinced of that. Yeah. Yay. So yes, we both so you you've heard my thoughts on the theater. We've 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 talked around we talked at every character we've the only character we've really talked specifically directly about uh intentionally as a section, is, is John Merrick himself. Uh, we've talked about everyone else around him. Um, so, so some things here, some things here. Uh, Turner Classic Movies, yet again, bringing out the, bringing out the great quotes, bringing out the, the greatest hits you could ever ask for. They don't call it Turner Classic Movies for nothing. You know what I'm saying? No, they, they, they kind of do. They, so, it's, it's just like to emphasize like, hey guys, check out our stuff. We call it classic because it makes it sound better. Quote, Initially, Lynch conceived an unorthodox approach. Why conceived? Why, why use the word conceived? I mean, <laughs> eraserhead baby. Anyway, continuing. Yeah. Lynch conceived an unorthodox approach to Merrick's disfigurement, devising an elaborate full-body suit to be worn by John Hurt. But when the actor was first fitted with the costume, just as the film was going into production, it proved too unwieldy and was immediately deemed unusable. Fortunately, the shooting schedule was reorganized to allow the 11th hour summoning of a makeup specialist, Chris Tucker. <laughs> Who's writing this? I could look it up, but you, anyway, uh, Chris Tucker. Tucker was so given weird. access to actual plaster casts of John Merrick's head and limbs held by the London Hospital and from them was able to create makeup applications that were exact in every detail. Just want to take a moment just to appreciate that they actually got a hold of the plaster casts of the real like Merrick, and and made everything to the exact detail what they were doing here. Huh. Yeah, like, it's it's pretty intense stuff. That's... So, the Elephant Man makeup took seven to eight hours to apply each day. Oh, no. So, if you're John Hurt, you're going to be John Hurting after doing all this, right? Like, like it's got to be heavy. You're sitting for that long letting it be applied. I don't even know how this I, works. I myself, like... Recently, for my work, I've had to drive back seven to eight hours to yeah. a location and seven to eight hours back and sitting in the same position yes. for that long. Already, I feel pretty messed up And then up you with. feel like you want to go do a, like an award-winning performance afterward, right? Yeah, completely. And, but again, this is like twice per like yeah. week that I have to do this. Just imagine like every single day. And it would take two hours to remove. It so, takes two hours just to remove it. So about nine to ten hours of your day already gone. Let's assume that this person has probably had a chance to like sleep for about eight hours. Let's How not assume, because I have some more info on that, actually. Oh, no. So Sir John Hurt, he's apparently been knighted, would arrive on the set at 5 a.m. and shoot from noon until 10 p.m. How? I don't know how the time matches up because five to five to noon. Well, ten no, to five that's, is that's seven right. That's hour, right. Ten ten to five is seven hours. But that's assuming they sleep on set. Yeah, I, which I mean that worked in Eraserhead, but I don't think this is <laughs> people living in the place illegally like Eraserhead was. So he had yeah. to go home likely and get some sleep. When would he eat? Like, would someone like feed him? Actually, like, while he's getting things set up. Like, I what? don't. 
I don't remember if I have it in my notes, but there was something on that where he would have to consume, I think, beverages through like a mouth hole in the, the, the plaster stuff. And anyway, um, continuing here. Okay. Because of the strain on the actor, he worked alternate days. Makeup artist Wally Schneiderbin described it as, quote, one of the hardest pictures I had to do. Everything was so precise. There were 14 pieces, not including the head, and they had to be applied exactly every day for continuity. You could not afford to make a mistake. Sir John Hurt kept the prosthetic cast of Joseph John Merrick's head after the shoot. What he stored he it in a cupboard in his house. Several years later, his wife was burgled while he was out, and a friend phoned him and said, there's been a burglary at your house. John asked what was taken, and the reply was, nothing. The robber must have opened the cupboard and the mask fell out. The burglar must have fled the scene in fright. I, was... I did a little bit of research. I cannot verify 100%. I think this one was the, from the Turner Classic Movies article. If true, incredible. I mean, like, to be completely honest, just imagine, like, a fleshy mound coming out of, like, <laughs> yes. a cabinet. Even if it was just, like, you know, the most stereotypical, like, you know normative face, right? A face of you or I. We're, we're, we're a little normal looking, right? Anyway, so if we have one of our faces, it would still be this fleshy face falling out of at, a cupboard. At that point, you just take no chances. It's like, you know what? I give up crime. Yeah, I I'm give, good. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. More effective than Batman ever could have been. <laughs> Let's put it that way. More on John Merrick, just the character. I don't know if you have any reactions to the overall stuff. I feel like you kind of reacted live there. Yeah. But but John Merrick, the character, what do you think of him as a character, as the main character, arguably, maybe? For the absence of not knowing the actual person, which, again, I find very important. I find that this character is very one to one and a half note. Yeah, I, find, I agree. I, I I think that it's just more so someone who is actively being hopeful. And again, it might be more so using the emphasis on things such as the verse said beforehand mm -hmm. and just trying to keep that in mind until his final passing that it becomes a, at times disturbing, but otherwise, if you follow close to Mr. Merrick through the film, Almost a calm descent as he slowly works his way to the grave. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that he's just there. And more so we're working with the people around his life more than working with a larger perspective mm -hmm. on the things happening with him. And that's why I struggle to say main character is that he is the focus of the movie but he is less of an active agent and more of a responder to the events around him that are happening to him. Mm -hmm. And and again, part of that's just the framing of the movie. Well, we'll talk about the real Joseph Merrick in a moment, but mm -hmm. as far as his character, yeah, a little bit one and a half note. Um, Lion King. We, we, talked about, we talked about his fascination with the stage. We haven't talked yet about his miniatures. He likes to make those like sculpture- like sort of like the chapel, cathedral stuff around, yes. right? Uh, what do you make of that, like, hobby? I'm going to call it a hobby. Because it seems significant to him. Like, the act of finishing that was very important for him, and the framing of the movie makes it very important, too. It's curious. I think that, again, it goes more and more into those Christian themes yes. that happen just throughout the film. I think it's notable for the dialogue that at the time, like when he first started, he had to just imagine the rest of it and just sort mm -hmm. of let his 
mind guide him his imagination so yeah which continues to add that element of this is a person but there's also it's a form of storytelling that he'll constantly be building and working on this even after something is broken down for his hard work because we do see it actively broken in one of the scenes with mm-hmm. the porter but constantly still trying to build back up build onto yeah. that foundation it feels metaphorical it is something in which shows a means of dedication mm-hmm. towards this. Project. Symbolic is maybe the better term. Not not yes. metaphorical. It feels symbolic. Yes. I, I think that's the structure itself and how beautiful it comes out is a testament towards his dedication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like the Shakespeare, like the Memorize of the Bible. It's yet another example of the film pushing the idea that he is someone who has extraordinary attention to detail and extraordinary memory and imagination. Yes. And that it's so dehumanizing to put him in the freak show where everyone just looks at him. Yes. Without recognizing his abilities beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that does a lot for that idea as well. Agreed. Um, kind of working toward the ending of the movie. Uh, John Merrick escapes to London after being assisted by the others at the show. And when he arrives in London, he gets accosted by this like random boy who is like, why is your head so big? Why is your head so big? Why is your head, mister, why is your head so big? And in running away from this kid and other onlookers are now watching, he accidentally like tramples over this girl, kind of like walks over her, uh, which prompts the men to start pursuing him. And what originally was just some random boy mocking him has become kind of a chase. Yes. And in this pursuit, his cloth mask gets removed. And John Merrick, a couple times in the film earlier during the Night Porter scene, had showed signs of effectively a panic attack. Very, very shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very difficulty um, kind of staying conscious. He would almost faint or pass out. Yeah. Uh, now he's having a, definitely a spell of having trouble breathing. He's on the run, reaches a dead end. I believe he's in a bathroom, right? Yes. And um, he gives the most famous lines of the movie here. I don't know if you know their famous lines or not. I did but not. But often known for this movie is the, no, I am not an animal. I am not an animal. I am a human being. I am a man. I will say that it was around this point that my brain also said, whether it's a testament to the film or mm. a testament against my overall belief on when things will end, that this was also going to be yeah. a point where, like, John Merrick may have passed. Sure. So, I, again, I, I, I do lean towards the former more. I, I think I give more credence towards the film on making me feel the fragility of Merrick's situation. It's kind of this impending ending feeling for the last, like, 20 minutes of the movie. Yes, John Merrick ends up getting brought back to the hospital. We have everything going on with the theater performance. Uh, When kind of asked about how he's doing and Dr. Treves is dressing him up in the suit to go to the theater, Merrick says, you know, don't worry about me, friend. I am happy every hour of the day. My life is full because I know that I am loved. I have gained myself. So reach this sort of like self-actualization, inner peace, very much got that sort of religious vibe of like, Everywhere he goes, he has that sense of inner light, inner peace. He doesn't mm-hmm. invoke God here, but I do think that the sense of his life is full because he knows that he is loved. That goes to, yes, Dr. Treves or Miss Kendall, but I also think that I am loved part does stem from a religious belief. Yes. 
that, that sort of love of God or being loved by God. Yes. So I, I think that that's part of it. Uh, we mentioned the stage earlier, the theater, but I don't think we mentioned that Mrs. Kendall does dedicate the show to Merrick, and that draws attention to him. He ends up standing, and everyone looks at him, and they actually applaud. They, they do not, again, act surprised or gawk or whatever. Uh, they do give him an ovation. Mm-hmm. Which, what did you think of, of that element? With the standing ovation that happens inside of it, again, I think that it's something positive that comes yeah. up for the character of Miss, Mr. Merrick. Mm-hmm. That there's this opportunity for him to stand within the light and just be appreciated, but not for the usual reasons right. that happen. Now, the motivations of the characters within the theater, whether or not they do follow under Kendall's umbrella of fondness. Everyone who loves the theater is a perfect person. Yep. Every single <laughs> last one of them, including you, dear listener. Thank you for being such a great person that loves the theater. You know who doesn't love- like the theater? Yeah. Jeff Bezos doesn't like the theater. Nope. That never liked it. You know who There's does? no theaters on the moon. Jeff Bezos has not built any theaters You know where on there the are theaters, though? Scotland. Scotland. I so do. Craig Ferguson, Craig Ferguson, he, who does he not live the in theater. Scotland, doesn't he? We used to, he came from there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he there? lives in America. Yeah, now. he's an American citizen. I remember yeah. the episode it's where good. he talked about passing the test. Yeah, and he I made remember a speech. again. Like he, he, he's pretty happy about that. But he definitely, you know, owes some some heritage to Scotland. Anyway, yep. this is beside the point. <laughs> um, uh, by the way, we, we talked about the the finishing the miniature, uh, potentially important uh, moment when he finishes the miniature. He says. It's finished, which I'm going to overanalyze and read as some Jesus vibes because Jesus yep. on the cross. Well, I mean, no, like that's one of the last things Jesus says in the Bible really is a variation of it is finished. It is done depending on the translation. Okay. I am tempted to say, considering what happens afterward, that the it is finished. My work is complete sort of vibe mm-hmm. then to go lay on the bed mm-hmm. knowing he's going to die. Like I would not call it. I would not call it suicide in the sense of. He wants to die, but I think he knows that he's going to suffer and he wants to die with dignity as a man. And in that mindset, he wants to sleep like he imagines other people sleep. Yes. And he's, he's expressed this concern before. He asked Dr. Trees if he could cure him enough to help him sleep sitting, you know, lying on his back mm-hmm. rather than sitting up. So I, I think this is an area which I think we can all understand whether we agree or disagree with or support or don't support his decision. I think it makes sense why he would want to lie down on his back, even knowing that would likely kill him. Yes. Um, and again, I think there's some Jesus vibes there. It could be coincidence. Could be coincidence. It's just, there's so much iconography with, with Christianity that I, I feel like there's enough to support the potential. Mm-hmm. This then leads us into the ending part, which gets a little more surreal, a little more David Lynch elements. We pan over to Mrs. Kendall's picture, then down to John Merrick's mother's picture, over to the miniature sculpture, and then almost like out the window. Like it goes up to the open window. (laughs) We then get like Star Wars mode. Maybe this is why George Lucas was like, hey, make my movie. Uh, We get the (laughs) night sky moving toward the stars and this voiceover of John's mother. The credits say John's mother, and, and I believe that's been confirmed that this female voice is meant to be John's mother. There's at least two John's mothers. And this is probably one of them. Never, oh never, nothing will die. The stream flows, the wind blows. The wind blows! The cloud fleets, the heart beats. Um, 
And we get John Merrick's mother creepily fading in inside of a white ring. I think it's kind of eerie looking. I think it's meant to be good. It's a calming thing. But I find it like slowly creeping in as a little menacing. Man, whenever it comes to heaven, everything's just fine. And uh, this this whole nothing will die idea goes into quiet, ominous whooshing. And then you zoom into the left eye and there's the credits. So those last lines spoken by Merrick's mother are mm-hmm. a quote from the Alfred Lord Tennyson poem, Nothing Will Die, which I would read, but it's it's basically the part you read and there's just more before and after it. <laughs> it it's what you think it is. Yeah. It's you know, what you think it is. That's how quotes work, you know? There's usually more before and after it and you so, pretty sure think it out. I feel the same way about this ending that I felt when I first watched it because one of the few things I remember about Elephant Man was thinking that the ending was real heavy-handed. And I still feel that way. And it's weird because this is probably the only case I can remember where I would say that a Lynch ending feels very heavy-handed. Okay. Usually Lynch endings, I'm left like, huh, so that was a movie. Like, I'm kind of left like, and even Twin Peaks, like, think of how he ended season one or season two, right? Like, when Lynch is given control over an ending, you don't really know what you're going to get. I would say Eraserhead had closure, but I wouldn't say it like hit you over the head with its morals. I think that it may feel heavy-handed to you if I may give a chance to... You certainly may take a chance on me. (laughs) You could do your very best. Let's... As far as this goes, this film goes, other than the unknowing at some moments of the ending, the way it does end up ending and just the general form of the story, again, it feels like a film more than what I imagine you might interpret a David Lynch film to be. And so the use of some spectacle that might be used, but with everything kind of grounding around it, it makes it seem more emphasized, but not in a positive way. I I feel like part of it is the, the subjective side where I have an aversion to how much this movie wants to invoke Shakespeare Bible, high society, Western value, blah, blah, blah. And then ending on this Lord Alfred Tennyson quote poem. I'm just like, I, I get it. I get, I get it. Like, just just Uh please leave me alone. And and, and part (laughs) of it's just a natural aversion to sort of that type of, um, storytelling mechanic. I have nothing against Tennyson's poetry. I have nothing against Shakespeare. Yes. Uh, I, I'm not at all, but it's the combination of these elements that it just feels not pretentious necessarily. I don't think it's pretending to be anything more than it is necessarily, but it just feels like I'm being beat over the head by this idea of poetry and art and humanity that I'm just like, I don't know. I think it should have just ended. If it just would have ended with him, like it pans to the window, it goes to the stars, it shows the mother's face and there's no words. It's just the whooshing wind. No, we got. I actually would have liked that a lot more. I'm going to bring that up to you, Professor, how you would feel. I know it's a hypothetical, but if the Lord Tennyson wasn't there, everything else was the same. If it, if it, if he laid on his back, it went over to the pictures of the two. It went over to the, the sculpture finished out the window to the stars face comes in, goes to credits. Eh, I I would like that far more. I think I'd feel about the same. So to you, it's a neutral. The poem doesn't add or subtract. The poem is there. The poem adds towards the themes, but the themes have already been implied throughout the film. I just don't think it's needed. Like, I don't, I think it's it's just hitting you at the last minute over the head again. It's not necessary, but I don't feel like I'm hitting the head. It's Mm. just more so it's as if it's like, Hey, by the way, here's a brochure on your way out. Uh, hope you have a good one. (laughs) I, I spit on that brochure and I knock it out of their hand. (laughs) 
The spitting was unnecessary, this actually, is, in hindsight. This is why I can't take you to the theater anymore. This is why. Cleo. I mean, again, I, I I recognize with with the little bit of self-awareness that I have in this moment, right, uh-huh. is, is that, yes, I, part of it's just my own aversion to these types of, of, of stories. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I One of the things that I love about David Lynch is that so much of his work is abstracted. I don't want it to be total nonsense. I don't want it to be something that I think is incoherent or purposefully just trolling me. Pierre and Sonny Jim. But if it if it's something that le- lets you come up with your own ideas, it lets you wrangle with it, it lets you work with it, I respect it and find it way more interesting than if on the way out I'm like, oh, by the way, this was the message. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, this is an important point. That's, it feels very handholdy for Lynch. That's why you have to look into the face of Anthony Hopkins and then cut off your arm or something. I don't know. So this is the section where you're going to want to cut off my arm because I have so many notes and, and I'm like, I don't want to have to talk this much, but at the same time, I think it's interesting. Yay. So talking about the accuracy of this movie. Talk to me. Um, I have not read any books on Merrick. I have not done any advanced research. All of my information, like I said, is going to come from like that Guardian article and the IMDb page. But, but, but it's interesting stuff. So, from an article by Alex von Tunzelman of The Guardian, yeah. titled The Elephant Man, Close to the Memoirs, But Not the Man, the opening scene with his mother, where she's terrorized by the elephants, is based on John Merrick's real claims that this did happen. Okay. So, Merrick, in his memoirs, has said that, yes. However, other sources, when I was doing my research, disputed this claim and said that that likely did not happen, that that, that was not there. To be fair... There is there is a precedent for the movie to have it. Is is at least whether it happened or not. There yeah. are precedents of that idea before this movie. To be fair, the hard part is that John was. I'm sorry. Uh, it would be Joseph in this case. I'm gonna get to the, yeah. That was the next thing I was gonna say is that but, John Merrick's real name was Joseph Merrick. But in this case, Joseph Merrick would have been there, but also not there. Yes. For obvious reasons yes. of the lack of birth. And so the reason why it's called John Merrick is a little unclear. One of the two sources for the movie were was Dr. Treves's memoirs about the situation. And Dr. Treves got the name wrong. Treves, Treves. just called him John, just kind John. of inexplicably. And, and I don't, from just it's my preliminary nickname. research, it's probably a nickname, but it's also kind of weird because I don't know if he wanted to be called John. It's a little unclear. So I'm going to say Joseph. Just no. out of the assumption that's his actual name. But if he preferred to be called John, I, I mean no ill will here. I'm just going by what I think is his actual name. Now, mind you, uh, what is the book of John all about? Because I, I'm i pretty sure there's no book of I mean, Joseph, Joseph. It doesn't have a book, but he's a pretty big Bible character. He's pretty big, but doesn't have a book name. It's not big enough. I'd say Joseph's a bigger character than John in the Bible. Yeah, I didn't get a book name. Did not get a book name. Maybe the book of Joseph is like a parenting guide or something. Like, if your <laughs> oh, no. son is the Mu- Messiah. Uh, I was going to say Mufasa. If your son is the Mufasa. Anyway, sacrilege aside, continuing here, IMDb. When Dr. Treves wrote his memoir, he referred to him as John. His handwritten manuscript reveals that Treves knew Merrick's name was Joseph and deliberately crossed out Joseph and replaced it with John. My gods, why? Merrick's surviving correspondence shows that he signed his own name as Joseph. Contemporary news articles about the case referred to him by Joseph. Why Treves changed the name is unknown, and people kind of, like IMDb at least, blame the movie for continuing the misconception about his name. Your name is John now. Bites is based on a man called Tom Norman. And historians have pointed out that the real Tom Norman, he was rude to John Merrick or Joseph Merrick, but it might have been part of an act. 
okay. for the stage and okay. not actually abusive behind scenes. There's indications that in real life, Merrick had chosen voluntarily to exhibit himself, was never forced to do so, and was in an equal partnership with Tom Norman, splitting the profits 50-50. So... If true, this is a lot more complicated than the man was enslaved by the sadistic weirdo man. Yeah. It's much more likely that the man knew to profit off of these people, but also saw an opportunity as a businessman. Mm -hmm. And Merrick was like, well, I, I look like this. I'm not going to get a job like at a store. Mm -hmm. I, I only have so many options. And he made a deal to work with them, get 50-50 of the profits. You do the marketing, you bring me around, you kind of give me a place to stay, yeah. and then I'll put on this performance and we both benefit. Yeah. It seems like it wasn't as like dramatic as the movie makes it seem with the idea of this was a slave, this was a captive person. Yeah, no, it kind of emphasizes almost like the first line that uh, Bites, that Bites does. says. But which... when Bites says it, it doesn't even like seem like it's, Right? Like, it, it just kind of says it, and the movie lets it go. I don't know what we're supposed, quote-unquote, supposed to think of that line. Yeah, and said so it seems like a business partnership, if true. If true. Again, weird, who knows. Uh, in the movie, Bites took Merrick by force to Belgium to perform again. But in reality, Merrick had left for Belgium voluntarily for a new business partner. But it is true that when he went to Belgium, he was robbed by the new partner. Again, not the old guy, not the guy Bites is based on, but, like, a new guy. Okay. He was robbed by him. And there was an angry mob situation similar to what's described in the movie, and he went back to London very distressed. So, like, ah. that end result is true, but the leaving was not a kidnapping. He voluntarily left. So. If true. If and, yes, true. I'm wondering something similar to what you're wondering right now is the why. And no, I don't no, no. know. I th I th I'm thinking about something else because as far as I'm concerned, like, again, like, there's an angry mob situation, right? If it is to be presumed, say, for example, uh, if accuracy is way off, mm -hmm. um, that's one thing. But if it's true that his spine was in a different position, if mm -hmm. his movement was limited, how could he escape an angry mob? I, that, that, that's, I, where, that's where my hesitation comes Yeah, with the I don't story. know. And it might not have been a chase, you know, like the way the movie portrays it. It might have been more of a cornering. And I think it would probably be more likely a cornering than a chase. I suppose whenever I think of, like, an angry mob, I don't usually, like, imagine just a cornering and then they just kind of stop. That could be a that could be an angry mob. It could be it could be probably an angry mob. Angry mobs are different all over the place. Have some more angry mob open-mindedness, I don't want to because it's an angry mob against a poor guy. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Quote, this is from that uh, Guardian article. The film's depiction of Merrick's life in the hospital and his desire to be a decorous young man about town is its most moving and most accurate aspect. The article concludes with the verdict, The Elephant Man is a mostly faithful version of Treves' memoirs, but the real Joseph Merrick was a stronger character than either Treves or the film allows. Hmm. Which I think is an interesting kind of way to think of it. That because Treves called him John and treated him like a one-note kind of thing and only knew him from one perspective... Mm -hmm. The movie took that idea and also made fictional elements, embellished things for film, and changed enough details to make it more of a clear-cut, like, see the humanity in this tortured person sort of narrative. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's... that I'm relatively surprised, actually, from hearing that. There's more! There, there's even more. That was only half my notes. It's only half. We're halfway there, friends. So, this is from IMDb now. Many of the events shown in this movie never happened. Uh, Joseph Merrick was generally not ill-treated by his managers. 
and he certainly was never abducted from the hospital as depicted in the movie. The Despicable Night Watchman, as I mentioned before, never existed. That was David Lynch's creation. Yeah. The way IMDb says it, Merrick had a peaceful and generally uneventful, if short, life at the hospital. Okay. The real Merrick's London showman, Tom Norman, was not a brutal drunk. Again, some of this repeats from the last one. Yes. He was a well-respected showman and founder of a temperance society, which there's some irony there, I think, too, that he's conflated with the night porter a bit. And temperance society, they would uh, not be in the drinking as much. To be, to, to just clarify for myself as well as others, what is a temperance society? That'd be like your teetotalers, your non-drinkers, mm. advocating against alcohol. Ah. Which, again... He's conflated with sort of that crowd, which I think is interesting. Um, He and Joseph Merrick were friends, business partners. Norman paid all of Merrick's expenses. They're earning 50-50. In a few weeks, Joseph had saved up to 50 pounds, which was as much as a typical working family made in a whole year. So if true, he was actually making quite a bit of money off of this. This was not like he was living in the, the drudges here. Like, he was making bank. Which, again, if true, like him departing to Belgium would make all the more sense yes, for... going back to business. Yeah, financial opportunities. And ever since Treves wrote his memoirs with the character of the cruel showman in the, in the description, the Norman family has been actually appalled, and they've embarked on a campaign to clear Tom Norman's name. So his granddaughter, Valerie, and at the time of reading this on IMDb, it said she was 82. I couldn't okay. find anything, just quickly searching if, if she's still 82, if that's older information. Point is, at the age of 82, she was still, like, publicly wanting his reputation to be restored. Okay. So the family kind of resented the fact that Treves, in his published memoirs, made it sound like Norman was this awful person. Then the movie comes around and further embellishes that idea. Okay. So it's like, no, this was not what our dad or grandfather was like. They were completely, like, good partners. He treated him well. Yeah. So, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um... Joseph Merrick's condition was undiagnosed at the time of his death. This is less a contradiction and more just like a, by the way, later studies of his skeleton and cast made of his body led researchers to suggest that he might've suffered from neurofibromatosis or uh, it's his, it's his NF for short uh, type one, a genetic condition from which one in 4,000 people suffer. The NF foundation used this movie as a fundraising tool and credited it with making the disease more widely known. Later examination, including CT scans of the skeleton, led researchers to believe that he suffered from the Proteus syndrome, a much rarer condition than NF. In 2003, researchers used surviving DNA samples from Merrick in an attempt to determine his unique condition. However, these tests were inconclusive, Mm -hmm. and the cause of Joseph Merrick's condition still remains unknown to this day. Okay. Due to the constrictive deformity of his mouth, Merrick in real life never spoke as much as he does in the movie. Dr. Treves often had to act as Merrick's interpreter for visitors. Those who Mm. knew him well, such as the hospital staff and friends, grew used to his impeded speech, but it remained very indistinct, and it worsened as Merrick's condition worsened. I don't know if I trust the man who called him John. I wonder, right? You do? And then then the last thing here I have on this is, in the movie, uh, Merrick constructs his cardboard cathedral from scraps he finds in the trash. He based his design on a view of St. Philip's Church from his window, Actually, Merrick's rooms in Bedstead Square were around the, the corner from the church, and the real Merrick assembled his church from a prefab kit of Maine's Cathedral, Germany. So that hmm. makes it sound less dramatic when it's a prefab kit, but still impressive. <laughs> I couldn't do that. Still impressive. Nope. However, it's a very difficult model with a lot of tiny pieces. So again, yes. it's a model, yes, but also, like, it'd be hard. It'd yeah. be very hard. it take a lot of, like, fine-tuning motor skills and patience. Yeah, it'd be hard for a lot of people. Yes. 
And uh, it took a modern kit builder 17 solid hours to assemble one, and that's using both hands and modern tools. And that's someone who's, like, used to building kits. Not like <laughs> someone who's not used to building kits. Okay. Um, Joseph Merrick's beautiful cathedral can still be seen at the Royal London Museum Archives, uh, ironically in the basement of St. Philip's. So I don't know the significance of the basement of St. Philip's. I believe so. that is that because that's the, that's the church. That is the church, but yeah, I, it's so so. Are a lot of people out in the basement? What significance well, well, is no, the basement? Well, no, the, the the irony is that it is located in the basement of St. Philip's, which was what it's modeled after. Is there just that? That's it. That's the irony. Okay. Anyway, that's that's the background of the movie, Yay! which which leads me into a category broadly called ethics. Yay! So this movie, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna assume the the, the best out of it. Okay. I'm gonna assume that the motive of this movie is to bring awareness to the idea that people with extreme abnormalities of birth, they cannot control, whether it's physical or mental, that these people are just as human, just as worthy of dignity as anyone else. Okay. And I, and I want to believe then that the main message to take away is that there is a sort of importance to dignity of human life, to not mistreat people, to not put them out for display in mockery. Okay. I want to believe the film is doing that. You, okay... IK. UK. UK. IK. So I, I believe that. I believe that's the intentionality, other than the money factor of, of turning a well-known story into a movie. I feel like you're building up to, like, uh, something which... No, I mean, I do believe that's generally the case. You do believe it. Okay. Where I'm, where I'm coming there with the negative, is. where I'm coming there with this, it is. Found it's it. just my concern of, with how much was changed... Mm-hmm. And some of these being pivotal details. Yes. It feels like they took a real per again, if, if true, it feels like they took a lot of complex nuanced situations involving this man who again, wanted to be part of these shows for money, for a way to make a name for himself with a voluntary business partner and simplified his story down to almost like hunchback of Notre Dame, Disney Quasimodo Frollo vibes. I just watched it recently again, so it's fresh in my mind, of like someone captive and like abused and then someone who's the captor and the abuser and really just Mm -hmm. kind of almost, I don't want to say it's almost milking the misery in in a way for the movie. And and the the problem I'm wrestling with, and I I do not think there's a simple answer. And again, I'm not trying to cancel the movie. The, The ethical question I have is at what point is it too far to change someone's story to make it more tragic Mm-hmm. when it's ch- and changing what the person was, are you not in a way putting him on display, calling your movie, the elephant man, bringing attention to the, 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 the worst case scenario about the situation and making you feel those sad emotions over it and not even really talking about the real guy anymore. Are you not in a way putting him on a performance again? I don't know. In the end, we got to kind of look into the past the best we can. Again, I avoid spoilers, so I have yet to look into the past admittedly on this. But what did Joseph Merrick, sort of his existence Mm -hmm. inside of these scenarios, what did it do with matters going forward, especially for those who were in similar mm-hmm. conditions to himself, were these things still perpetuated? If we were to have the tale told in this manner that is more proper to the life of Joseph Merrick, then what would the story then be about? Would it still be the same thing? Would it be more so uh, a kind of... I 
like, and that's the hard part is people's lives are always more complicated than a two hour movie. You can't make a simple theme out of one's life and keep everything accurate. Absolutely not. But again, the, maybe the dynamic of the movie could have even shifted dependent on how, I think Merrick could have like tried to find ways yeah. to make the best out of the reality of those who think right. that they're taking advantage of other people when instead sort of like taking that and reversing it around, reverse Uno style onto them. Very much in light of things such as, say, for example, The Sting, in which like there's this operation going mm. on that is going to be financially beneficial to Merrick. And and I, I almost wonder if maybe this could have at the very least, just become a more nuanced story. Like, if we were willing to acknowledge that Bites or Norman, however you want to view the character, the person, if it was more of a mutual decision, if it wasn't some just evil personified creepy man, if we didn't make a boogeyman out of him and and took it more dynamically, we could have a more nuanced conversation in the movie, a more adult conversation, arguably, uh, about the nature of exploitation and those exploited. And the ways in which people can find empowerment or success in a disgusting or corrupt system. I mean, no matter what, I'm still going to say that the act of having freak shows is abhorrent. But even within an abhorrent system, people find ways to thrive and and make a living off of it when what else was he going to do at that time? So I think it's a lot more complicated than the movie makes it seem. The movie has to simplify it to give us a simple message and then hits us over the head. I know you don't agree with the hitting over the head. (laughs) I feel it hits us over the head at the end. And I I made the Hunchback and Notre Dame comparison. I'm willing to give that one a lot more leeway because it's totally fictional and it's a kid's movie, the Disney version. And I think that what it's doing is more successful as a fictional kid's movie. But this is based on a real-life situation, and it's more aimed at adults. It, it is based off of a real-life situation, and we can also question whether or not... You like I'm coming on story. so hard to this movie. I don't, even, <laughs> I don't dislike it. I don't dislike it. And we also have to question, though, is that the use of this movie and its message, A, whether it is faithful enough to the legacy that is mm. Merrick, but also, B... What is the movie doing at the time of its release? In this case, it's about 1980. And yeah. let's just face it, for especially in uh, American history, we have had um, issues whenever it came to people's appearance, if you will, uh, and the interpretations that can be caught from that and be right. muddled and set into that. Um, being inside of that, coming out of the 1900s, but still fairly fresh out, out of various yeah. events, what could it just be to those who would view it as a modern viewing audience and how much import would it be for Mm -hmm. that time as well? And I don't know. I don't know if there's a cultural zeitgeist of 1980 where this type of film was especially pertinent, urgent, or topical. Yes. I I, I don't know if it was. I guess I don't have any inclination that it was. Yes. I mean, obviously, again, I agree with condemning the idea of a freak show. I I agree with condemning that. And and I guess part of my, 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 my struggle here is that in vilifying Bites so much to make him a one-dimensional villain, they've gone away from accuracy, but increased their anti-freak show propaganda. <laughs> and I agree with that agenda to an extent. Yes. But I, I guess I would have wanted, I don't know to what degree, but I would have wanted more realism to have a more nuanced, complex theming rather than have it as simple as it is and as one-dimensional as it is. I don't dislike the movie, and I feel like maybe we're dishing out some hot takes here. I don't know. I, I think that at this point we are tinkering, if you will, with yeah. I just want to know, like, what could have because because let's 
let's talk about the movie overall a bit, right? Okay. So, so you and I said we're going to wait to give our scores. Yes. I feel about right to give mine. Okay. Um, I would give this a six out of 10. Okay. Three out of five, however you want to do that. And, and, and I felt that way when I first watched it. I feel that way now. I think I've maybe have more reasons for it than I did back then. I feel like it mostly succeeds because of the, uh, Anthony Hopkins' performance is really strong. I think that John Hurt's performance is really strong. The, the makeup, the, the prosthetics, incredible. I think a lot of the, the editing, the, the scene designs, I think it's mostly very good. In the editing, small squabble. I don't like a lot of the abrupt fade-outs. It's a stylistic thing. I don't think Little Lynch movies do it as much, whatever. But most of it is like a well-made film. Pacing, music, all that stuff. Good. No problems with it. What holds it back for me is I don't know what to take away at the end of it. It doesn't feel as abstract as other Lynch films I love, but it also doesn't feel like, even though it's heavy-handed, it's somehow still kind of hazy to me. Okay. Like, it still feels like I'm leaving the movie not really with a clear perspective. I'm just kind of leaving the movie with, like, one-sided view of one person character, and it's I understand the emotional journey of it, but I'm not really sure by the end of it what to think of it. In, in a way that I don't, again, I don't find as compelling as the mysteries of Eraserhead or Twin Peaks. I think that I've got some parallel, but yet some perpendicular towards you sure. on some of my ideas. I still, uh, in the realm of parallel, I give it about 6 out of 10 as well. Mm -hmm. I think that knowing a fair amount of the record and its use and accuracy is important. And hopefully, if true, it is a little bit more easing towards oneself but at the end of the day when we look at this as the structure of the film and the film in itself and even without the with the absence of the story let's just face it john merrick the character yeah. in this film is a sentient set piece yes he is something that people look at maybe even some people see as a goal but there's not enough to john to the point that I feel too compelled at him. I mean, even going back to Hunchback Notre Dame, Quasimodo is a more fleshed out, fully realized person. Mm -hmm. And that's in the kids' movie. I think that having this character, though we do see some flaws physically and maybe tentatively in emotion, mm -hmm. it's not explored enough. It's almost yeah. as if, like, once the hurdle is passed and we get running, then we are just up to the whims of the world around us. Mm -hmm. And that can be powerful in its own right. But in this case right here, it just feels like at that point, we're just passing certain thresholds until, again, the demise of the character. And I think that that kind of loses focus and concentration from viewers such as myself mm -hmm. to the point that... Yes, I still was entertained. Yes, I still think the movie looks fantastic. But I don't find Merrick as investing as I think he could have been. Yeah. But who cares what we think, right? I do. What matters is what the critics thought in 1980. I'm a critic, but not and in 1980. And the box office feedback. The okay. money, the moolah. I know you do not know what money is, you second-rate person on the podcast who I don't give money to in our lore that we've established in this one episode. I feel both confused, insulted, but at the same time humored. Both. Both of the three. Those are three, yeah. The three both. The three both. So, Just both. So Three uh, ever. Eraserhead was a success because even though it took five years to make and 
constantly was like funneling money from their personal lives. Um, it no, no. had an underground success. It found root in a lot of artistic circles and it ultimately ended up getting David Lynch's foot in the door to work on things like Elephant Man. Elephant Man was, was a success because it actually turned a profit. Uh, so Elephant Man had a $5 million budget and it made $26 million at the box office. Oh, By today's numbers, that doesn't sound like a lot, but again, this was back in 1980. Still pretty good profit. So... With inflation yeah. from 1980 to 2021, that would be about $83 million. Again, again, in terms of $5 million now would be like a, almost like a low budget. $83 film. million from the $25 million sure. age. Now, when, mind when you, you count, when you count inflation, yes. When you count inflation, yes. Which the cost of that would have been $16 million. So Either so way. <laughs> I'm Sam Stanley over oh, here, okay? okay? okay, okay it's okay. good to keep these numbers in mind. In Japan... To was which we big? always must return. Was it big? It in was Japan? the second highest grossing foreign film of the year. Yay. I don't know what the first one was. I did. Oh no, it does say. You know what? You want to know what number one was? It's like poetry. It rhymes. The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, did, yeah, I just, Star Wars. Because remember we talked about Lynch, Lynch almost directed a Star Wars movie. This less rhymes. It kind of slam rhymes. More slant so rhyme. is. It's not a slant rhyme. It's a slant rhyme. It's like that little footnote at the bottom of the book. You know, it, anyway, it doesn't have to rhyme. It's just there. It uh, it had theatrical rentals of 2.45 billion yen. Cool. Uh, Wikipedia, Shall I calculate that too? Wikipedia, uh, Roger Ebert gave it a two out of four stars. Writing, quote, I kept asking myself what the film was really trying to say about the human condition as reflected by John Merrick, and I kept drawing blanks. In the book, The Spectacle of Deformity, Freak Shows, and Modern British Culture, Nadia Durbach describes the work as, quote, much more mawkish and moralizing than one would expect from the leading postmodern surrealist filmmaker and, quote, unashamedly sentimental. She blames this mawkishness on the use of Treve's memoir as the source material, more of what I've been kind of dishing out in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm backing up a little bit with, with Ebert and Durbach here. Currently, Elephant Man has an 8.1 out of 10 on IMDb, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 78 on Metacritic. Hey. Again, generally, critically, commercially successful. Hey, good for Elephant Man. We're doing Dune next, by the way, which is not those things. Oh, boy. Uh, in terms of awards, it had eight nominations for Academy Awards and zero wins. From the Belgian Film Critics Association, David Lynch won the Grand Prix Award. British Film Critics... Excuse me, Grand Prix Award? Did they take this racing? I don't know. I, I didn't look too much into the Belgian, uh, Belgian Film Critic Association. I'm going to assume it's like their, their best. Like their, their good job, David Lynch, best director, best in show. Mm. It sounds cool, though. I would, I would want to win that. It does. British Film Critics Association, four nominations and three wins. The wins were in Best Film, Best Actor for John Hurt, and Best Production Design for Stuart Craig. Okay. Best Actor, interestingly, goes to John Hurt, not uh, Anthony Hopkins, which I think both did a good job. I'm not going to try to like say that John Hurt didn't deserve it. It was yeah. good. He had to do so much with just his voice. And considering the conditions he was working under. Yep. Um you know, still deserved. Uh, British Society of Cinematographers gave Freddie Francis the Best Cinematography Award. The uh, Caesar Awards, which are the National Film Awards of France, it won Best Foreign Film. Mm -hmm. France in general, France and Japan, they both like David Lynch. In general. It, uh, Lynch has had a lot of success critically and commercially in both countries. Which I think makes sense. And there's a lot you could say about why that is. But I, I think Lynch has some roots in French cinema. And I think that... Japan has had a fun time interpreting and reinterpreting what Lynchian really means over the years. Uh, Golden Globes, 
They won four nominations, and by one, they mean they won zero. They won zero wins. <laughs> but they won four nominations. Uh, the Directors Guild of America, uh, David Lynch, was nominated for Outstanding Director. And then Grammy Awards, the soundtrack was nominated. Tough year, basically. It was a lot of yeah. nominations, not a lot of wins, but, like, oh, no, successful. It's, it means a lot still to get nominated. It's successful, and, and also Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars was killing things. I don't know if Star Wars was critically winning, but... Um, it was definitely winning when it came to the box office. So just kind of with some random trivia about these awards, it was one of two black and white movies to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1981. The other was the movie Raging Bull. Okay. It's a pretty good movie. Okay. Um, and both lost to the movie Ordinary People, which I don't know anything about. It is the only, it is the only Best Picture Oscar nominee that year that did not win any Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. According to IMDb, when the nominees for the 53rd Annual Academy Awards were announced February 1981, many in the film industry were appalled that this movie was not going to be honored for its makeup effects. At the time, there was not a regular makeup category, and winners for makeup were cited with a special award. Feeling that the makeup technicians deserved to be awarded for this movie, a letter of protest was sent to the Academy's Board of Governors to ask them to change their minds and give the movie a special award. The Academy refused, but in response to the outcry, they decided a year later to reward makeup artists with their own annual category, and thus the Best Makeup Award was born afterward. Well, that's... Good that it happened. But bad Bad that that it happened a year later, yeah. yeah. Because of earlier restrictions, some other notable movies that did not receive Oscars for their makeup, but may certainly have done so, would have been notably Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931, The Wizard of Oz from 1939, and because poetry rhymes, The Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1939 is also <laughs> cited as a likely candidate would the award have been occurring earlier. Okay. Which, that's that's the elephant man. You already answered one of my wonderful and strange questions of the week. So Come I, up I with have, another one. I have one more. I have I have one on reserve, but it's it's the predictable one. So that's, that's be excited for this question, but is not it wonderful. Too, not is too it strange. Exci- we never said that it had to be unpredictable. I mean, okay, it's, it's, it just had to be wonderful and strange. It's, it's pleasant and slowly peculiar. Well then, <laughs> so uh, well, give us the diet coke of questions. I feel like I've then, said this. like of the week, and I've said today's, and I don't know which is the official title. It's of this today anymore. of the week. This year's pleasant and slightly peculiar question of the week day. I feel like that's too broad, but very is. Well. How has watching The Elephant Man shaped your views on David Lynch as an artist? Um, it's the same question I asked about Eraserhead, but swap the titles. I feel that as far as this goes, something that's more traditional, it seems that David Lynch is able to work well enough with people to make a mm-hmm. rather cohesive He can direct a together. normal people's movie. He can do that, and especially with the help of Mel Brooks. It also kind of gives me a bit of curiosity on what's... Now, you don't have to answer this, Cleo. I feel you can, compelled You now. can let, slap this down. We've seen like him bring back actors yes. again, time and time again. Has he brought back any actors from Elephant Man to well, any future work? Well, considering that I said it was not used in Twin Peaks. I said that he has not used any of these actors in Twin Peaks. But future works. I do not believe so. Mm. I do not believe that Anthony Hopkins, John Hurt, Anne Bancroft, or any of the other actors in this movie were used in another David Lynch film. If they were, it's probably a pretty obscure role. Okay. I don't believe I'm missing any glaring omissions there. I don't think they were ever reused. Why do you think that is? I think, okay. 
I think that David Lynch did not forge as much of a personal connection this time around. Okay. And it might just be the personality conflicts because from what we read about Anthony Hopkins saying this role was not that interesting to him. Mm-hmm. And John Hurt had to put so uh, so much effort just to get this like s- this makeup on every day. Yeah, I feel like this was probably much more of like cut and dry. We're gonna make a movie. We're gonna make a profit. And I don't know if Lynch had a personal dream with it like he did with Eraserhead. Okay. I always think of Kyle MacLachlan from Blue Velvet and then Twin Peaks, but he was in Dune earlier. So I don't know if if. David Lynch had connected deeply with Kyle MacLachlan in Dune, mm-hmm. or if it wasn't until he brought him back in Blue Velvet that maybe he forged that connection. Okay. But it feels like once we got to Blue Velvet especially, he had kind of accumulated some actors that he works really well with and would just keep working with. Okay. Um, Jack Dance obviously wasn't able to be here for this one, so that's, that's already a detriment here. Yes. But I almost wonder if, you know, shooting in a different country, shooting with a totally different budget, totally different parameters, he didn't write the script... This was a movie that at the 11th hour, they were still having to make these all these changes to it, right? Yes. He was beholden to what Mel Brooks was able to finagle with like, you know, the companies that were distributing it. I feel like this was much more of a business venture than it was an art project. Okay. And Dune, for all of its failings and misgivings and things that Lynch may hate about it, Dune was experimental. Dune may not have been written by David Lynch, but you can tell when you watch it there's a lot of Lynch artistry behind it. It feels more David Lynch to me than, than Elephant Man. Even if it's not in the writing, it's in the set design, the costuming, the acting, the layout of it. It's a weirdo movie. So I feel like Lynch had a bit more investment in it. And I don't mm. know what happened with Elephant Man. I don't know if it's because other writers were involved or the, the production of it, but it just doesn't feel as personal to me. Yeah, he does also doesn't have exactly a Mel Brooks in the ring because you keep saying, like, David Lynch yeah. for Dune, but we all know it's Judas Booth. It's all We all Judas know Booth. it's Judas Booth. If you would like to witness the betrayal that is Dune... <laughs> To whomstever you believe the the betrayal is, uh, we are checking out Dune in our next episode of the podcast. And if you guys have any of these streaming services that I've just Googled, uh, just to check out. And assuming that they are still having this movie when you listen to this. We are talking about Dune 1984. Um, The new one is also just released uh, as of making this recording. Yes. Not that one. We do want to watch it, though. We do. We really do. We do. But the original David Lynch 1984. Uh, you can see the epic adventures of Paul Atreides for Dune from 1984 in HBO Max, or it seems Hulu. Huh. Yes. I went to Hulu, and for some reason it was with their cool little package that you get like... Well, Hulu uh, does stuff with HBO Max, so I, I, I think that could work. Yeah. There's some licensing stuff. There's Hulu licensing. is... I don't understand Hulu. I don't understand it either. I don't think Hulu understands Hulu, but they're still... Because haven't they done things? There's like a Hulu bundle with Disney+. Plus. There's... But two, then they license things with HBO Max. Hulu is clinging on for dear life for all the things that are yeah. popping up all over the place. And it's doing a pretty good job of it. Also, it's got a good name. Yes. Hulu. So we're going to be checking out 1984's Dune for sure. For absolute sure. Both myself and Khalil also really want to check out the new Dune as well. Not for the sake of analyzing it as David Lynch work. We might say something as mild. It's, uh, I'm gonna, I hope I don't say the name wrong. I love the director, but Denis Villeneuve. I'm going to say his name right. That's mm-hmm. what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it's that, okay? Okay. Um, same director as Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, Enemy. I've watched those three. Love them. I still got to see some of his other films, but... Um, 
I love that director too. So I'm interested to see it for the director, even if it's not Lynch. This film looks like one that if you have the opportunity, if you have the health and ability, uh, it's going to be on HBO Max. Isn't it's it? going to be on HBO Max, I think, but there's been some back and forth on that. I don't know. It might but be. <laughs> I, I do know that you have made mention that it does seem like a theater. I mean, experience. okay. So here's the thing. I don't want to actively recommend you to go to the theater. If you're in a situation where it could put health at risk for yourself. or Exactly. Other people. If, however, you deem it safe, um, this is a movie where it's going to be about the big booms and the big sights. The big Vill booms and the big sights. Villeneuve is a, is a guy who likes to have scale in his movies. It's all about the, the, the size of the scenery, the epic proportions of things. And when you think about the grandfathers, like that, that's important. When, when you're thinking about the, the, watching this movie that's all about the, the scale and scope and the boom. Yes, the grandfather's the big You worms. probably shouldn't watch it on your phone. That's what David Lynch would always tell me. Just specifically that. David, there's a meme about kind of David Lynch that he just complains about people watching movies on their phone. People make fun of it a lot. Mm. <laughs> anyway, we cordially invite you to watch Dune 1984, David Lynch style, uh, and check us out on the podcast. Uh, maybe watch the Denny Villeneuve movie if you feel it's safe. Uh, yeah. That may have been a word or a string of words, but <laughs> hey. I don't think we'll be able to translate that. So, Just like the question of can Dune be translated into a movie properly, or is it doomed to always be a book and cannot be a film? That is a conflict that, as someone who's read the book, I look forward to talking to and you. And as someone who has not time. read the book and knows almost nothing about it, because I barely understood the David Lynch film when I watched it for the first time, I'm excited to revisit that. And with that, I must I feel like, like the Elephant Man, this ending has felt like it could have ended several times. It could have. So I feel like it's kind of poetry. I feel like... Because it rhymes. I, it's rhyming. Is actively rhyming as... I'm is this going to be the end right? Like, the no, audience is, like, I, looking I've at... I've been trying to pull the brakes for a bit here. They're, like, looking at I've, the time, and they're, I'm like, there's only so much left. Gotta, it's got to end I'm soon. I'm trying to pull it, but it seems that for some reason... But then they're factoring why, in the math of, like, how long is that outro again? Why do you keep putting coals how long is into the, the fire? How long is that outro That's, again? If I do the math, stop, is it ending now, or when is it going it. here? You gotta make sure... We gotta stop this. We gotta turn this... We gotta turn the train. We gotta turn the train. We gotta get this done. I... Are we done yet? Ah!